someone mentioned urban sketching and I was like, that's cool. Those, that's a cool club, you know, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. They just go out on location. They dare to sketch anything and everything and then even buildings. I mean, how do you even do such a big thing on a small page? And Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today, I'm speaking with Amsterdam-based artist and educator, Kosher Kuna about the many ways she has practiced her creativity, her work at Sketchbook School and her YouTube channel. Also, how she has used her COVID lockdown as a time for artistic metamorphosis. After exiting her position at Sketchbook School in early 2020, Kosher found her travel plans dashed by the onset of COVID. But even within the constraints of lockdown, she turned things around with a single, simple rule. Doing only what is fun. This is the title of today's episode as well because, in a way, it is the theme of our conversation. Doing what is fun might sound like a way to evade important responsibilities, but it can also be the best way to approach difficult problems, to overcome obstacles, and to regard the same old things with a fresh perspective. We talk about the many wonderful ideas that have come to her from following this rule through lockdown, how it has led to writing a book, to making her own art studio, and a new journey into abstract art. Just like my previous episode, this episode also comes with a postscript bonus section, which is exclusive to Sneaky Art Insiders. Insiders are the people who support this podcast every month. As an independent creative, I rely on listener support and feedback to keep doing this job and to keep doing it better with every conversation. The Sneaky Art Insiders Club allows me to do just that. I'll talk a little more about the different ways that you can support my work during the break at the roughly halfway mark. Meanwhile, if you're curious, refer to the show notes to catch the relevant links. We begin this conversation with that moment of big change that crashed into all of our lives in March of 2020. How did Kosher reorient herself to the new reality of COVID and how did she find a silver lining for her life and art practice within these social restrictions? This conversation was a lot of fun for me, so I hope you will enjoy it as well. Happy listening. Hello, Kosha, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so happy to speak with you and to be able to interact with you today. Hi, Nishant. I am so honored that you actually invited me. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I wanted to initiate, like, I have so many questions for you. Like, I want to know all about how you came to be doing these various creative pursuits that you've followed. But uh, I was reading your blog yesterday, and I chanced upon this article which you wrote uh, I think maybe you wrote it just when you left sto- sketchbo- uh, sketchbook school mm-hmm. and it also happened to coincide with the lockdown and yes. COVID. So it turned out to be a very interesting time in your life, this early, let's let's call it the early phase of the lockdown. Yeah. 
so I want to ask you about that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about lockdown and this productivity spurt that you seem to have from actually from taking a break and from just trying to have fun? Yeah. So I, yes, I don't even know where to start, but let's start at the lockdown. Um, I took a break or I took actually a, um, a sabbatical and I had planned to take that sabbatical in June 2020. Um, but I decided on it like beginning of January. Um, and the sabbatical was actually the start of a lot of new things, but also the end of sketchbook school, which was a very painful thing to do, but we'll get there later, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the right thing to do. And so uh, in January, I decided that, but I, you know, I needed, I wanted to step away from sketchbook school, but my business partner, Danny, he, uh, he didn't want to stop, you know, I wanted to stop, but he didn't want to stop. So we needed to figure out a way to, um, for me to leave and for him to keep going. And I'm really glad that we did in a really great way. Um, but it meant that I offered to stay on for six months until June and then, uh, you know, phase out like that. I don't know if mm -hmm. that's the right word, but uh, you know what I mean? So that uh, he could just, you know, keep on going. And um, so I planned to leave in June and then in March, the <laughs> pandemic hit and uh, yeah, in June, I was free to do whatever I wanted. And I had all these amazing, cool things planned that I hadn't been able to do at all because of sketchbook school for seven mm -hmm. years, because sketchbook school was more than a full-time job. And uh, I just didn't have the time to travel to, you know... Uh, take a workshop somewhere or go for for a drawing uh, retreat or anything like that so I planned all these things I was going to visit friends all over Europe and I was going to go to Tel Aviv and learn from three different illustrators and do the you know urban sketching stuff I was going to do so many things and <laughs> everything got cancelled so there I was with all my great plans and uh, a sabbatical, which I didn't even know how long I was going to take for it. And um, it was actually great. It was, it was actually really, really good not to be traveling because um, it got me really back to myself and to the basic questions. What do I want in my life, from my life? How do I want my life to be? Um, and traveling is fantastic, but it's also distracting from these big questions. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's adventure, but it's also going away from other stuff. So um, it really helped me to just be in the very small, you know, space, especially in lockdowns. It's just, uh, you know, you're just in your apartment and maybe go to the supermarket and that's it. Uh, but that's how I actually discovered, like, where do I want to go with my art? Because I wasn't ready yet to think about where do I want to, you know, go with my work life or with my life. I mean, those are really big questions that you should just ask yourself regularly anyway. But, um, yeah, it gave me a lot of space to uh, play and experiment. And uh, I discovered that I wanted to learn painting 
um, started with some gouache just at the, you know, at the dining table, put some gouache on a, on a sheet of paper and try that and learn from YouTube and online courses and finding my way. And then um, from there, I actually thought I want to work bigger and I don't want to work with gouache. I want to work with these big tubes of acrylic paint and see what I can do with that and throw with it, you know, not just not just paint, but just throw stuff around. I wanted to go wild because it's like on the total other spectrum of what I do on a daily basis, which is mm-hmm. working in line, you know, drawing. Um, so, so that's really what uh, the biggest development in my art uh, the past year uh, has been that I sort of, you know, discovered an abstract artist in me. <laughs> and I have no idea where it's going because I feel like I'm only scratching the surface. But um, it's it's great. And I don't think I would have been here if I would have traveled and done all those things that I planned. Probably I would, al- I would have already, you know, been working again after a few months and now the sabbatical stretched for more than a year i think yeah mm-hmm. sort of yeah <laughs> uh, uh, I, I you used an interesting phrase in your blog post uh you said that you discovered an extended version of the artist in you yeah and i really <laughs> like that phrase um i really like what it suggests so Firstly, uh, the idea that somebody who's been creative for many years can still find something about themselves that they didn't expect. Oh, yeah. And what that leads me to is this idea that do we sometimes, uh, that we can be more than we sometimes permit ourselves to be. Like we put ourselves in these boxes of who we are, the hashtags that define us, you know, in or define our work. Mm-hmm. And then you get this opportunity to sort of break out of that. Yeah. So uh, uh, now you're following this in, in your sabbatical, you're following this idea that you only want to do things that are fun. You don't yeah. want to do things that are quote unquote work. So how, uh, take me through this process of how did you discover something new about yourself while following this basic principle? Um. Well, I think actually following what is fun is sort of a red thread through the choices I make in life. So that isn't really something new, but um, uh, deciding on that rule for myself very clearly, or maybe even a mantra, was because of um, how hard I had been working And that something that had been so much fun to start with, and I have had so much fun for seven years with Sketchbook School, with Danny, working with Danny. But at some point, it just didn't fit my life anymore. And and actually, I think that touches upon what you said, like you keep developing, you know, and I think we're never done. You're never done learning when you're an artist, but you're also never done as a person. And I think uh, the things that you need, they change too. And uh, that is definitely what happened uh, during the the period before um, I took the sabbatical and before I decided to leave sketchbook school. 
things just didn't feel in place anymore. And I didn't know how to fix it. But things, the things that I did felt too much like work. And that didn't feel right. So that's where that rule comes from. Like, I only want to do fun things. And um, especially in that sabbatical period, I didn't want to do anything that felt like work. So that I could start projects, but also allow myself to stop them again if I was bored or done or whatever. Uh, but it also allowed me to start writing a book. Because, you know, as long as it was fun to write bits and pieces of the manuscript, I would do it. And uh, if, uh, if, it, if it wasn't fun, then I would stop doing it. Um, but it gave me structure, actually, especially writing the book, especially in the beginning part, the first part of the sabbatical, writing a book about drawing and just writing bits and pieces, not really knowing where it was going, but just it had to go get out, you know. Uh, that gave me really a, sort of a structure to the days that didn't have any structure anymore, you know. I was used to working full-time, and my days would fill with production and emails and meetings and everything uh, that, you know, has to do with, with work and with uh, creating. And, um, yeah, suddenly I didn't have any of that. But I do like structure. <laughs> so that gave me sort of a something to hold on to, maybe, or something that gave me also a um, sense of uh, accomplishment when I would write just for an hour, you know. I would be like, oh, I did that. That's great. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... I just went on a tangent yeah, there. Yeah, let's let's pick it apart. Um, <laughs> so you're you're in the sabbatical. There's lockdown, and you can't really, you know, you can't do these travel ideas that you have. So uh, how did you then proceed with what were some of the first things you did to still start to have fun? And how did these ideas occur to you? I'm very curious about the book because the book being uh, fun for you, being able to tell people or take people through your work or through the way that you do your work. So maybe uh, you can also tell me a little more about what this book is about and how did it occur to you to write it? And then how did you go about this process of putting it all down? Yeah. Um, so a few things. First part of your question, I started to walk a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I hadn't been doing that so much. I'm, I mean, I would just walk from um, my uh, apartment to two corners away to my studio where I would sit down and work. That would be the walking that I did. And then in, in the lockdown and during the pandemic, a lot of people actually picked up walking and hiking. And, and, um, and I realized that it was sort of a meditative thing to do because of the of your feet you don't really need to think about it. You see a lot of things and you empty your head and then um, there's space for ideas to come in. So I would, and, and that's also when I um, decided to start writing a book about drawing, I would actually just, you know, think about it. Like, 
I have no idea what I will write today, but maybe I'll write for an hour. And then I would put on my shoes, go outside. And after like 10 minutes, an idea would just pop into my head. Like, oh, I can draw, I can, I can write about this or that. And I can add a drawing, that drawing that I did in 2019. And then it would just all develop and I would take some notes on my phone. And then I, I would get back after like two hours of walking and write for an hour. And it was awesome. And I'll explain a little bit about the book um, because I have been doing these Draw Tip Tuesday videos for ages. I think 2013 was the first one. And um, so people were telling me, you should do a book. You have so many tips. You should do a book about that. Or people would tell me, you should write a book about drawing. And that would actually appeal way more to me than... Um, doing a book about drawing tips. I'm like, I'm doing videos weekly about that. Why should I write about it? But mm -hmm. doing a book about drawing and the drawing process and sketchbook keeping and how that, you know, um, can really change your life. I've seen it at sketchbook school. I've seen many people really, you know, um, uh, develop in a different way because of drawing. Um, I was like, yes, I definitely want to write a book about that but when I never have time you know um so that was really something that was planted in my head for years but never uh, I never really had the space and the time for it so now was actually really um perfect timing and uh at some point at first I just didn't want to do anything that had to do with projects or you know making something except for just drawing in my sketchbook um, but at some point it felt I felt ready to start making and to start writing and as I said I just started writing like I'll just do this and if it becomes a manuscript that's fantastic if it doesn't then that's fine too because then I've written things that just needed to get out and it's out of my system I can move on um, and I think that really helped me to just be free in that whole process of, of writing. Um, in a way, I would just sort of write chapters like I would write a blog post. So it felt familiar. And the things that I talk about, that I write about, feel really familiar too. So the book is, um, is not about drawing tips. It's um, not any how-to stuff, because I think there's a lot out there that is all how to and step by step it really is about how how you can apply a creative practice in your in your life and how it can change your life because it's meditative it's healing uh, and it's a lot of fun right <laughs> and uh, and you create your own stories in your sketchbooks and I love that so much that I just want to share it. And that's also how Danny and I started Sketchbook School. We wanted to share things with the world, you know. <laughs> we had a few visions and we're like, we can share this with people like us. And yeah, so that's, I think that's the main reason also for um, getting online and putting stuff uh, on social media. I just want to share, you know, I learn stuff as I go and I share it so we can all learn together. Yeah. 
yeah what i find so interesting about that is like with your youtube channel and through sketchbook school you've been doing a lot of structured work like you say yourself you had a lot of deadlines and it's not been only about the creative work itself it's mm-hmm. also been the whole architecture around sharing it with people and having classes so a lot of back end work and meetings and boring technical details of things one could think that having such a structure would would help you to also add one more goal to it that okay now you need to write a book so that can take like you're already thinking about these things you're already making the youtube mm-hmm. channel so you're working around these ideas in fact i would say that these years of working have planted these various seeds that then all came out at this time that you gave yourself so the the thing that i'm thinking about is what it means to have a structured approach to a lot of objectives that we try to achieve and then pursuing fun without having those goals in place and sometimes it's the latter one that leads us to do so much more and to come out with so much more expression how how do you feel about that that's this balance between the two yeah it's complicated it is complicated because i while you were talking about this i was thinking about my uh, paintings my abstract art because i'm so new to it and i'm learning mm-hmm. and i can really feel the difference uh, in mood or in uh energy i guess when i paint just i i try to paint very in, or i try i paint very intuitively it's a hard word i paint very intuitively <laughs> and when i do that it works out well because it's just really like i feel like putting a blob here and then i'll just smear it with my finger and then it dries and then i can can put another layer on top and i like this color now so i need that i don't like that color so i take it away so it's really building up in a way that is very it's not based on anything there is no not really a goal except for maybe finishing the painting but it never really is finished um but at some point i had a few paintings that had a certain sort of style to it or a certain sort of thing to it that i really liked and once i had that i lost a little bit of the freedom because i was like those were really great i want to make another one of that like that just in different colors or maybe different texture or whatever and then it became harder because i had expectations and i had like a goal like okay i have this big canvas now and it has to be as cool as that one and Ah, oh, so you really need to step back then and let go and tell yourself why was I here again? Is it because I need to prove something to myself or is it just because uh painting is just really relaxing and fun and I forget about time and I end up with a big colorful mess? And then if you realize that, then you can let go again and mm-hmm. just, you know, do something really ugly on the on the canvas and then step away from it and the next day you come back and you're like okay i know how to solve this and then you're back to the creative problem problem solving so and when it comes to drawing and um the creative practice yes there is a structure to that in at least in my ways you know i really like drawing daily 
sometimes I skip a day. That's fine. It is a little bit like uh, journaling. You know, you can skip a day. It's fine. Um, but if you keep the habit, you you keep that flow going and you keep your story going and there's a certain chronology chronology to it um even if the drawings don't really relate to each other it it's from my life so they do you know they do relate and so that drawing practice the daily practice or even even the weekly practice i think that can be a goal to you know to achieve and it doesn't matter what kind of drawings you make then. Right. So the goal to achieve is not um, to make really great drawings, but because you have that drawing practice as your goal, you will get better at drawing with each right. drawing that you make. Right. Does that make yeah, sense? That's, yeah, it absolutely does, actually. So there's this quote that I really like. Um, I've sort of internalized it over the last uh, half, uh, like five, six years, and it's become part of everything that I do. So what it says is that you should not have goals, you should have systems. Hmm. This is what the 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 quote itself is. And it you can break down these terms into how so the the writer, I think this is a quote by James Clear, the famous motivational writer. Yeah. And what he's describing is that if you have a goal in mind, so it's a static objective goal. Like for example, if you want to become a vice president at a company, so you spend a lot of time trying to do that and you motivate yourself along those lines. And then the idea is that once you reach that goal, you will be happy and yeah. because you've achieved your goal. But what it also means, therefore, the corollary of that is that until you reach that goal, you're not allowed to be happy mm -hmm. because you're only going to be happy once you're, you've got a goal, yeah. once you're vice president. And then once you reach that goal, you set another goal. And then again, you are allowed to be happy once you achieve that goal. Right. So the you do a lot of work, but the actual amount of time you spend being happy is only momentary. It's and only once you've achieved one goal and then the other goal. Exactly. And then you set yourself another goal because you achieved it and then everything starts again. Uh-huh. Exactly right. So what he says is that instead of goals, we should have processes or systems. The idea being that there are certain things you like to do. And those are the things that you derive your joy from. And in pursuit of those things, every time you do them, you are happy because they, they are fun for you or they are enjoyable for you or they fulfill you in some way. And by doing that again and again and again, inevitably you will reach a good destination. But having only the destination in mind keeps yeah. you from enjoying this, uh, this path to the destination. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm a big fan of James Clear. I think he, uh, he, he nails it in many ways. Mm -hmm, yeah. But yes, I, I, I agree. Um, I think goals, I think goal setting can be helpful, but they need to be achievable goals and not too big. And um, you need to also have milestones in between so that you actually have these happy uh, points in between as well but I yeah I I agree, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah so another another uh, like I want to go into the abstract art again in a more detailed way but uh, now I'm thinking with respect to uh, the the book that you wrote and you're doing both of these things simultaneously so I wanted to make an observation in case I forget it later that sometimes when you're really good at something or like 
it becomes a little difficult to empathize completely with the struggles of somebody who is not very good. So a really brilliant physicist can sometimes not be the best professor mm. at a college because he can't understand why you don't get it. It's so simple. You, of course, you can do this. Then we can talk about real problems. But so he can't really understand the struggles of somebody who is not either gifted like him or as experienced as him or as accomplished as him. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that by putting yourself through this process, inci- coincidentally of learning abstract art, you are climbing a new ladder in which you're again, not at the top, you're at the bottom in some respects. Yeah. What you want from it, how this works best are things that you are discovering. Yeah. So you're a learner once again. And although you have learned other skills, and let's go into that after this, uh, so many other creative pursuits... So you have a sense of what the achievement feels like or what the trajectory might resemble. So struggles, good achievements, little goals, happiness, and then more struggles. So you know how it's supposed to feel, but you're going through it again, which helps you maybe connect a little bit better with people who have these kind of problems. So does this, uh, tell me with respect to your book, for example, the way you described it, it makes it sound like it's not necessarily for anybody of a particular skill level or even anybody who's committed to being an artist. So how do these, how did did, did these two things connect or, uh, you know, in in a positive feedback loop in some way, being a learner yourself and then also writing a book about, about drawing? Yes. I mean, I, uh, first of all, I think it's great to be a beginner. <laughs> so that's why I always want to learn new things because it makes you grow as an artist and as a person. Um, and uh, exactly like you say, when you're a beginner at something, which doesn't maybe relate at, uh, to the thing that you are really good at, you can still use that feeling of beginning and uncertainty and comfort zone that's just not there and all that. Um, and also writing a book. I've never written a book. I don't. I didn't even know how to put a manuscript together, but it turns out it's just like a bunch of blog posts together and <laughs> that can be a manuscript. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, and that's, you know, that's how I wrote the book as well. Like, I've never done this before, but I feel uh, like it could be something fun. So I'm just going to try it. You know, it's also just allowing yourself to stumble and stumble into something or stumble out of it again if it doesn't work. Um, So... And I, I think that my book, and the book isn't published yet. I don't have a publisher yet. The manuscript is kind of done, but it's not. It's never really done, I think. And I'm still adding all kinds of ideas to it, which is great. So it's a living piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book will be published, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I think it's um, it's true that this is for people who who do have an affinity to drawing. But if you just like looking at pages full of drawings, then the book is for you too, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question about the relating to people who start. Well, uh, I'm thinking about how... So you mentioned just now that it's good to be a learner. Mm -hmm. It's good to learn new things. And... 
I feel, and we've I've discussed this with various other guests. So let me touch upon some of those threads. Uh, Danny also in episode twenty, we talked about this quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But now I'm thinking about uh, very early. Uh, I spoke to Uma in episode four, mm-hmm. and she made this really nice visual representation of how to build on skills. And at a certain point, in order to and she's she's got this analogy of a house of cards, so almost like a pyramid of cards. And at a certain point, in order to go higher, you need to widen the foundations a little bit. So you might need to learn a skill that is not directly related to what you're doing, right. but yeah. it is it's it's in the other direction. But it helps you to have a wider, more solid foundation. So this this idea is so crucial. Like this. And this requires you to be vulnerable all over again. So what I see the most important thing about being a learner is that you have to be vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. the older we get, the more hesitant we are to be bad at things. We only value being good and we only value being expert. So expertise is overvalued in such a way that you don't want to, let alone other people, you don't want to expose to yourself that you might be bad at something. So you don't want to try new things. And more and more people are afraid to be learners, even to themselves. Right. Is I don't know if it's true that when you get older, it gets harder to be not good at something. I'm I'm not sure if. Well, let let me let me rephrase that. I I don't mean it's actually objectively harder, but in the sense of like we were talking about how what the things we permit ourselves to do. Right. So we make it harder, thinking that oh, this is definitely beyond me. And we don't consider that it's something that can be acquired even today. So drawing, for example, the most typically, I never used to draw, so therefore I can never draw. Right, 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 right. Okay, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I don't really have an answer to that or a reply (laughs) (laughs) because... Because what I feel personally, um, but maybe I'm taking it too literally, what I feel pers- personally is that I actually allow myself, I'm nicer to myself. Now that I got a little bit older, I am a being nicer and I'm allowing myself to make mistakes and to uh, to admit that some. Some things I'm not so great at, but if I'm interested in it, I can still learn it because I have the experience that, you know, before I've done that too. Um, But then that is all in the creative realm, I think. Um, Then again, I also just gave up trying to do music or something many 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 years ago because i was just like okay i can't do this this is just, i just can't <laughs> but then yeah okay sorry i'm just going round and round here because as a kid i had this vision in my mind of being a great piano player because of a friend of mine they had like this big piano in the in the living room it was so beautiful you know with all those keys and it, it was just mesmerizing i was like i want that and i could see myself sitting there you know playing in a concert but then uh, it turned out that you need to practice a lot for that yeah. yes you do <laughs> and uh, i hated it i hated practicing 
and I would go to, you know, to my weekly lessons and it would be horrible because I didn't practice. So I didn't get better. And then I was totally like disappointed because it was not at all like the vision I had in my mind. And I think um, then and there I might have decided this is not for me. I have no talent, you know, but right, maybe, yeah. maybe the piano wasn't my instrument. Maybe my teacher wasn't such a great teacher. You know, it could have been anything. Um, and then later on, like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, I tried to, to pick up the ukulele and try to, you know, do a few chords. I was like, I think I can do this, but I didn't pursue it because I was like, Okay, so it's either spending a lot of time trying to get a little bit better at this or spending a lot of my time drawing, which brings me so much more fun. So I think there's a difference there too, like how how bad do you want it? And if you really... Um, and that's also, again, about goal setting. You know, you can have a vision of yourself being a fantastic artist but if you don't want to put the work in that vision is never going to happen and if you put your systems in in place and you do your practice then at some point you might be on your way to being that fantastic artist you know right yeah so true like i actually this resonates with me because i had the same experience uh i was taught the piano when i was very young and I took lessons for like six, seven years, but I disliked all of them oh, because gosh. I just, I, exactly the way you mentioned, I would go for my weekly classes having not practiced and then I would never get better. And then that becomes this loop. You're not getting better. So you don't enjoy it. So you don't want to do it. Therefore, you don't get better. Exactly. But <laughs> your heart wasn't in it in the first place. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't have practiced. Yeah. And sometimes uh, now I, I switch between two ideas about this. One is to think that maybe this was just not meant for me to do. It mm -hmm. was not my heart wasn't in it, like you say. Mm -hmm. But the other is that maybe I just didn't have this sense of the trajectory that learning is. The idea that I can't be good next week, I can't be good next month. It's going to take a year, but it is going to become this much better. Like at the end of the year, it's going to be something. So this idea of how you learn is also something I didn't have really at that time. As a and kid, I tried to you... be a musician in different ways. So right. later, I uh, after I abandoned my piano, uh, I picked up a guitar in college and I learned with friends. And then I had a sense of a trajectory because there was this music right. that I really passionately liked and I wanted to play it. Right. And then playing with friends, having the fun element very, very prominent in that, it made me better at better at doing that. The consequence is that ever since I left university and I don't play with them, I'm not playing music anymore. So again, it's been a drop off of a few years. So I didn't, maybe it wasn't in the final reckoning. Maybe it's not my, the correct creative pursuit for me because it wasn't self-sustaining. Right. I needed that external impetus of friends to have fun with in order to keep it going for me. But otherwise, I absolutely agree with you, what you just mentioned. Yeah, that's so funny. And I think it's true. As a kid, you have no idea for the long-term uh, uh, learning, you know. It's just like, no, I just I just did my homework. I don't want to do my practice, my piano practice right now. I want to play, you know. And um, 
Yeah, and it, if it doesn't at some point, you know, feel like you have a bit of development there, then it's just no fun. And it's just, I, it was just awkward sitting at the, those lessons for me. It was like, oh, oh, oh you know, tapping those... <laughs> <laughs> those keys and just making a mess and you know the teacher would just be like yawning and waiting until the hour was over I was like why are we doing this you know afterwards I'm thinking why <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it's so similar actually <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk about this uh let's this is a good uh segue to early years so i want uh, i again from your blog i found out that you started your cre- or maybe the first prominent part of your creative journey was as a photographer yeah that's so, right so yeah uh, let's let's go back to the start of this story tell me about how uh, this interest in photography developed for you how did you pursue it and what was it like to be a photographer let's let take tell me this whole story okay i'll tell you the whole story so <laughs> how long do you have? No. <laughs> <laughs> Unlimited time. So I grew up with my dad being a photographer. So he had a, a studio where he would do um, uh, productions um, and he was specialized in food photography. So it was like really tedious kind of work that he did because it was lighting and it was like really detailed and stuff like that so I would see him do that I was like you need so much patience for this and why even (laughs) so I was like I am never going to be a photographer in my life (laughs) never going to do that and um, uh, then but I, I was very like I was creative as a kid I would always draw it was just the most fun thing to do um and um so when I was in high school I had to decide what's next for me and then I wanted to go to uh, art school but they found me a little bit too young and they were like you just go to like a graphic graphic design school kind of thing um just do it for a year grow up a little bit you will learn a lot of drawing techniques and stuff like that and then come back so I went to uh to do that uh to the graphic design uh, thing and um, I didn't just do one year because it was so much fun. I just mm-hmm. did the whole thing. It was a four-year uh, education. And where was this? This was in Amsterdam. All right. And um, somewhere halfway, I think, or in the third year. Um, so this was graphic design school. So we, And this is years ago. So all my knowledge of graphic design and stuff is like, it's dusty and no you can't use it anymore except for maybe layout and composition and stuff like that um but i did learn a lot of drawing techniques and um at some point and also like um uh, printing techniques and uh, that kind of stuff it was really fun and then we also did photography and um so the teacher, the photography teacher, uh, sent us out on the street to do street photography, and we would we would um, portra- make portraits of each other and do things with color and black and white. I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> so I had this image in my mind that as a photographer, you had to work in a dark studio and create all this whole scene, you know. But there was a whole world out there that was way more creative in my eyes and way more fun 
So that's when I started to really get interested in uh, in photography. So then uh, I did, I applied for um, the for art school. It was in uh, the Hague, uh, in the Netherlands, and um, and I got in, and I didn't like it. <laughs> so no, I did like it, but I I dropped out in the third year, I think. I dropped out because um, then we also did like this um, internship and I worked at a magazine and it was so much fun to do just, you know, assignments and, uh, you know, be sent out to uh, to portray people or to uh, take photos of whatever places, spaces. And um, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I was, my mind was way too much of a commercial artist for the art academy world so I was like okay this doesn't fit I just want to work I just want to make cool stuff and see it in the magazines and see where it takes me Um, so that's what I did and I just started as a freelance photographer and uh, tried to get you know to earn my money with it and I succeeded doing that um, which was really cool because I could just make my money with something that I really, really liked. But that was also what sort of turned it against me because after it was about 10 years, just a little less than 10 years, after a while I um, it started to become a job rather than pursuing that passion. And I would see the stuff that was published in magazines. I was like, okay, here we go. Another season, another picture, another thing, another. It was just like I sort of lost the love of it. And uh, I just didn't enjoy it that much anymore. And what I found really hard every time you just needed to, you know, take your portfolio under your arm and just go places and tell them like, I'm a photographer. Do you want to hire me? I'm really good at this. <laughs> and I hated, hated that part. Um, so at some point I felt like, okay, maybe, maybe this is done. You know, maybe I am uh, ready to do something different, which was quite a hard decision because Um, at that point I felt like, okay, so if I decide that I don't want to, uh, work as a photographer, then what am I? Who am I? You know, it was like an identity crisis really. Right. And, um, but I think now looking back and looking at, um, the seven year itch maybe, because I've been working with Danny uh, for, you know, uh, uh, at sketchbook school for about seven years. It might just be sort of a thing that I go through in life that I just need to switch and do something completely different um, because I'm done with it and I'm ready for a new adventure. So that, that, that's also why I was like, "Hmm, I don't know if getting older really, you know, um, stops me or or uh, 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 limits me I feel like with getting older I have these experiences like it's okay to do really make bold moves and uh, maybe it's a stupid move but it might work you know 
So yeah, um, but it was it was a really uh, great time. I, I mean, I, I worked for magazines and publishers, and um, you know, all kinds of really fun. Um, uh, I had all kinds of really fun admissions. I did a lot of portraits. So, and that's what I really liked, like just going somewhere to some someone. And then in a very short amount of time, you needed to make sort of a connection to get a, some kind of a personal story into your, in, into your portrait. So that was really a big uh, challenge, but um, uh, yeah, that it, it would be really great to achieve that, you know, like that's a really good portrait of this person and I got the spark in their eyes or I got their light really good so that's what I really liked about it and uh, I have enjoyed it very much but I don't really miss it either so yeah yeah I, I think it was interesting what you said about uh, so wanting to go to art school then uh, getting into photography sideways yeah. and not expecting to really enjoy it because you have had all this experience around photography as a child, your mm -hmm. father being a photographer. Yeah. So I'm thinking about what, uh, like what changed when you uh, started pursuing photography in that of, you know, compared to the things that you knew about it growing up. And then the, the thing that draws you towards photography over art school afterwards it so i'm thinking of it along the lines of a change in like the kind of uh, the kind of do like a dopamine is a very trivial way to put it but the kind of return that we want from something and again this is also related to the learning the piano for example like the the thing that works for us now versus the thing that has delayed rewards or rewards that we realize we don't want so uh, like uh, describe these things for me like liking photography when you kind of didn't maybe you would have thought you wouldn't have expected to like it so much and then not liking art school which you did want to kind of go to <laughs> yeah it's really interesting right it is really um about a certain image you have around things so yes it was a big surprise to um discover how interesting photography was um I think going to art school for photography was also kind of, um, uh, how do you say that? Kind of in the moment thing? I don't know. Just really, yeah. It's. I think it's how you make decisions. Like, I feel so interested. I, I'm so interested in this. I want to learn more about this. But, I mean, I was, I think I was 20. And I might not have thought so much about the outcome or the longer term thing. Otherwise, I might not even have gone to art school. I don't know. I really don't know. But right. it was it was because of the image that I had about art school and about uh, photography. I was like, this is super interesting. I still want to go to art school. It It seemed like something so cool to you know, day in, day out, be surrounded by artists and learn about be, becoming an artist. And um, so I could combine those two things by going to art school for to learn f to become a photographer. Um, but then it turned out that I actually wanted to become a photographer, a freelance photographer, 
instead of becoming an artist with a capital A, which they want you to become when you go to the, to the you know, art academy, as they call it in the Netherlands. So, um, yes, that is interesting how you have an image in mind and then it doesn't actually fit the reality. Right. There's there's a sense of like when you say artist with a capital A, like yeah. there's also this sense of a hierarchy of what yeah. is what is art right like what is real art and what is commercial and therefore lower in the hierarchy kind of art Mm -hmm. and so I'm thinking about how there's also a sense of especially when you're 19 or 20 to sort of uh, like to push against these kind of hierarchies that people want to fit you into you don't want to do what you're told to do or what you're told to respect or what you're told to you know worship and you want to almost uh, rebel against that and be an iconoclast and uh, so in in that sense having not having a sense of the trajectory like it's bad in some respect so uh, with again talking about the learning a new skill learning the piano when you were younger so it was you could argue that it was not a good thing that you didn't have a sense of the trajectory so therefore you didn't stick with it but it's also in with respect to your following photography it's also a good thing to not have a sense of the trajectory because then we put ourselves so wholeheartedly into these things that appeal to us at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there's 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 both a loss and something to be gained from not having a, a sense of, of the time and the evolution of things in our lives and the idea that we'll change. If you had known that mm-hmm. maybe I'll grow out of photography later, you wouldn't have dived into it so deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how I now rent an art studio and I am making art. And that actually, if I if I see myself, you know, uh, standing with my easel and all my stuff surrounded by myself, I'm like, that's actually the dream or the vision that I had when I was still in high school and I was like, I'm going to art school. I'll become an artist, even though I had no idea what it was. And now suddenly I sort of stumbled into that. Right. (laughs) After rejecting it for many years, you sort (laughs) of become that artist with a capital A. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say that, but yes. (laughs) I understand. Uh, So uh, we were at this point where you are a photographer and then you transition to becoming an artist with a small a. Uh, tell, tell me about this transition. So I'm curious to know what did photography, and I consider photography to be an art as well. So yeah. what do you, what did photography offer to you? And what did it, what was it more that you wanted, which, which told you that, you know, you need to pursue art again in some form? What did you pursue and why did you feel the motivation to do so? Um. So I think what I missed uh, by doing photography, well, photography at some point, I didn't make any stuff that was just for myself. I didn't do any projects anymore that would just, you know, well, sometimes I would, but it was very rare um, that I would just make things for myself or for my portfolio, which of course, it's very important to do because then you keep developing and you keep getting ideas and you um, you work on the ideas that aren't from the art director or that aren't like 
with all these frames around it, like, well, the theme of this month's magazine is pink or spring or whatever. So everything uh, is tighter. Um, so I think um, it, actually the same thing. It became too much. It it became too much like work instead of that passion that I felt in the beginning. Um, and what I also missed because I, I started to draw more and I started to paint more again. And the tactile part of that is really what I, what attracted me again, you know, instead of having that camera in between your subject and you, there's just a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil. And it's so more, so in a way it's more direct Although when you do, when you take a photo, that's a direct representation, you know, you frame it and it's a direct representation, but still, um, uh, it's more direct in your hands. I can't really explain, uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's a tactile thing about it that really attracted me and that I missed about photography. Also, at that point, there was this transition in photography. Um, uh, because the, uh, I worked on, a, on an a analog, uh, camera with film and with negatives and, uh, slides. And then the, you know, the development in, in the, in the cameras was of course, uh, digital and I'm not that gadgety. And I felt a little bit like, um, resistant towards it. But I did see that the art directors wanted uh, quick, 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 you know, uh, it can be digital. So once you've taken the photo and you took it through Photoshop, just send it over, you know. But I was still like, well, I have my negatives. I need to have them developed and I need to scan them. And I liked that. Again, maybe it's a bit of a tactile thing. And I did not like the whole digital idea. Um, and that's how also... I was pushed towards maybe this is not for me anymore just because of that sort of a practical uh, um, a problem maybe because I think I would have grown into it but I just didn't and I think it was a combination of losing the love of photography uh, and well maybe I should invest in a new camera and then just move on but do I actually want to so, um, yeah, that's, that's really what happened. Um, I forgot the beginning of your question, but, um, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I started to draw and paint more and I did, you know, I did drawings, like sort of mini art journaling kind of things when I would travel and I really liked that. So I wanted to do more of that. And um, so I started to just slowly sort of um, uh, discover and, and try things and experiment and, and stuff like that. But I, I mean, I didn't have, you know, my freelance income. <laughs> so I just took, like, I just found a job. And uh, so I started to work at, um, as a chef in a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> in um, uh, like a, a breakfast and lunch restaurant. 
so I would work in the daytime. I'm not such a night owl. But, um, and you know why? Because I thought, well, I love cooking. So maybe I should make my work, you know, make, make a job out of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I did, I made the, the same sort of mistake, you know, I love photography. <laughs> maybe I should make my money with it. And then I broke it. <laughs> Well, I I think what's really interesting about what you said uh, about the tactile sensation that you were talking about. So uh, two points on that. One, uh, a personal experience that I had. um, So my path to learning about learning how to draw better, uh, it involved loving the digital medium and then falling out of love with it for the tactile reason. So the first reason that I loved it was that it allowed me to do things without feeling like there was a cost to the page. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't losing, I wasn't ruining, quote unquote, ruining a page with my drawing. I could always undo and I could change and I could play with colors and things. So the digital medium, when I started with a tablet connected to my laptop, it led me, it led me to make more art because it's easier to get into it now so I got better at it and then I moved to an iPad and again that became more intuitive and a better way to draw using Procreate and the Apple Pencil which is Mm. absolutely amazing yeah so I drew more and more and I built up a lot of skills but I reached this point where and I talk about this with someone else in a previous episode uh, with Mark in fact in episode 23 with Mark Holmes that uh, I reached this point where everything started to feel the same because essentially you're using an Apple Pencil on an iPad screen. Yeah. So I was using dozens of brushes, uh, quote-unquote brushes on Procreate, but the tactile sensation of each brush was the same. So while the app did a fantastic job of emulating the physical dynamics of these brushes and how they would react to different kinds of paper and water quantity and all kinds of details, Nonetheless, the feeling of using it was the same as using any other brush on that app. Because again, it's the stylus and it's the iPad, the glass screen. So there was a need for me to get out of that in order to really understand how watercolors work or how brushes feel on paper so that I know what I'm trying to do, the simulation of on the screen. Mm -hmm. So I had to then fall out of like that that's the moment that I kind of just fell out of love with the iPad because I realized it's inhibiting me now mm. and now I need to go back to paper and then I started making sneaky art and then that became a thing and here I am uh, <laughs> but uh, another the sec- this was just about me but the second part that was interesting to me is what you were how you were contrasting photography with illustration so the same subject and let's regardless of skill level in this case but if you are sitting to draw somebody while you talk to them versus if you're sitting with them for 15 minutes and it will culminate in a photograph. So the the difference between these two experiences can, can maybe, maybe you can go into it a little bit and then I can come back to my point. Yes. Um, It's a, a really good question because I didn't draw so much from observation then I would just draw from imagination. I would paint these really sort of dumb colorful small paintings of fantasy animals (laughs) and it would bring me so much joy you know we just first I would just paint the canvas a small canvas uh, with a bright blue and then I would put like a bright yellow sort of pig 
kind of bear, kind of giraffe <laughs> animal, and I would be super happy about it. <laughs> I really want to see this animal now. That's fascinating. <laughs> I might have something in my archive. I might send it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> so, so. I, it was really about using colors and using the paint and brushes, I think, uh, rather than about the result of it. And I've actually been to, you know, rented booths in markets to sell my art. <laughs> if I think about it now, I'm like, okay. But it's been a phase, you know, a very colorful phase of fantasy, imaginary, uh, colorful paintings. But that also brought me to ideas like, well, maybe, maybe I want to illustrate a children's book. I mean, everybody who starts drawing might at some point think that. And <laughs> so did I. Uh, so I would work on a project, you know, that would just be a story, um, and really enjoy just making things up. I think that was really the contrast between the two things. Uh, I also signed up for um, the sketchbook project. Do you know that? Uh, tell me about it. The sketchbook project is um, uh, it's um, an, it's called the Brooklyn Art Library. Um, oh, right. You donate a sketchbook to them. Yeah, you actually buy a sketchbook. And they provide a theme or a few themes that you can choose from. And then you have like a few months to fill it. And then you send it back. And then it, it gets part, it becomes part of the, the art library. It's amazing. There's thousands of sketchbooks in that library. And you can go there and visit and just look through them. And it's, it's really amazing because there's like professional artists who send things in, but also kids. And it's fantastic. But that really also helped me to work on projects, to learn uh, to work on projects with some kind of goal in mind or at least a deadline. Like, okay, so I have this sort of a character in mind and I have so many pages and uh, some kind of story is going to develop over it. And that's what I worked on while I was actually working on a next job, which was just like working at a bank, answering telephone calls and I would just hatch, 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 hatch during my phone calls. Um, so yes, it was all very much from imagination, which is also far away from what I do now because I almost always draw from observation. So it has developed right. so much in those years. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, now with the way that you draw now and the skill level that you have with, say, drawing a person today from observation, how would you contrast these two things, like taking a photograph of a person versus drawing that person? So uh, in what ways does it differ? The tactile is a really good point for one, but how does that manifest itself? And how would you choose between which one of them is the better thing or you know, the, the right choice for that moment? In what circumstances one more appropriate than the other? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I still do love seeing portrait photography. And I think you can capture someone in a way that is very much them, but it never really captures them. 
because you're sitting up and you're, you know, it's like, oh, I'm being photographed right now. So there's always some layer of discomfort, I think. Um, but a, a portrait, portrait that is drawn, I think it just really has a different meaning and maybe also a different uh, goal to it. I mean, I love the portraits that you did. You did that whole series of portraits, you know, for um, for your project. And um, again, there is so much likeness, but it's so different because, I mean, it's not a, a direct representation. Um, and also there's the, the fact that you draw from a photo that has been taken. So that's also different. But when you draw someone directly who's sitting um, uh, right next to you or across from you, it is even more personal, I think. Because I would just hide behind my camera and tell them, look up or look a little bit, put your chin up or whatever. And it would be like a really sort of a technical interaction. But when I draw someone who's sitting across from me, they might actually feel a lot more discomfort because I'm just staring, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're looking much longer. It takes you a lot longer to draw someone. Um, I remember being portrayed by uh, Lapin. And um, he draws really quickly, but he just does not take his eyes off of you. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling tense about this, you know? And he made an amazing portrait. I was like, how do you do this? But well, he's a, he's a master. But um, yeah, so I think the difference is uh, really the time that goes into it. And uh, of course, you can put a lot of imagination into it too. If you look at the portraits that uh, Felix Scheinberger does of people, I mean, those are amazing. And I, I think they are probably very much uh, alike the person but it's also like the weirdest drawing you see you know <laughs> the weirdest portrait so I think that is really really interesting about drawing someone that you can add all kinds of things that you cannot when you use a, a camera right yeah in in a sense the artist is part of the photo of the of the product when right. you're drawing and of course this also stands true for photographers yeah. in a lot of ways because they make so many very personal artistic decisions yeah and not only at the moment but even with the extensive editing stage there are a lot there's a lot of personal investment so it's not it's not exclusive to the artist but uh, i'm thinking about something that i spoke in episode 15 with uh, a war illustrator george butler and we were talking about the difference between so uh, today we are saturated with images of war. Everybody, and we are saturated with images of everything. You mm -hmm. can't show anything to anyone that will truly amaze them. They've already seen everything. So uh, in the context of war and uh, the kind of deprivations that people face as a result, it's very difficult to move somebody because all these images have been seen, whether they are real images, whether they are uh, from movies, etc., etc. Everything has been seen. So we were talking about how an illustration still holds value today 
in an age where you can have photographs, you can have TikTok videos, you can have live coverage by CNN, what does it matter that you're sitting there and drawing them? What, what, what does your product matter in the end in today's world? So the historical comparison was that a hundred years ago, this was the only way to preserve something for posterity. So it really mattered. This is the only thing that will show the face of this king or this queen. Yeah. So it really matters that their portrait be done. And art has that need, in a sense, to society, even just a landscape. There's no other way that we will know what things looked like in uh, the 1700s, except to see a painting of it. So what does it matter today is my, was my question to him. And we were discussing how uh, a portrait is a, a drawing or, an, or a painting is essentially imperfect in a lot of ways and mm. imperfect in quotes because it's not the objective reality of what you see. Yeah. And a photograph with the technical tools in place is the entirety of everything that was captured in that moment. So as a former engineer, I think of things in terms of information and I think of how much information a photograph gives mm -hmm. and what that does to us as people who are saturated by media. And then the significantly lesser amount of information that a, a sketch or a quick ink drawing or a quick painting gives. And what does that mean for us as the observer when we see something that is got maybe one-tenth of the amount of pure information that a photograph carries. And George mentioned this in a very interesting way. He was talking about the galleries at which he's shown his portraits of, say, somebody in Syria or somebody in Iraq whom he visited and he was looking at their life and he made a painting of it. And the way people, uh, in his words, participate with that photo, so uh, with that drawing. So and a piece of a painting or a drawing invites participation from the viewer because they are filling in those gaps mm -hmm. that exist of information. And in, so in my understanding, in, imperfect or incomplete information invites the imagination to step in. And then we engage a little more deeply with these things. And that is also an interesting contrast for a portrait that you would draw of somebody versus a picture you would take of somebody as I see. Yes. What do you think about this? Yeah, I totally agree. I think you, your, your words say it all. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I can phrase it any better. Um, it, it makes me think about, was it Wendy McNaughton who did like a whole series of homeless people? In San Francisco? I think so. Um, it's like somewhere in the back of my mind. But doing something like that, you know, I don't think you can you can do portraits like that, walking around with a camera because you, you would be so invasive. Right. But if you get there with your sketchbook and, you know, uh, just have a little chat with them and tell them, like, I'm an artist and I like drawing and I think uh, you should be seen by people. I see you. Um, it's such a different approach. And the drawings become so interesting because I think she also wrote, like, things that they said to her. Mm -hmm. something in the back of my mind i'm sorry i'm just referring to something that is really vague and maybe not even her art but <laughs> but i also know that danny did something like that 
um, he, he drew people uh, around his neighborhood, you know, and uh, there was also a homeless person there and maybe a garbage man or something. And he wrote things about them or snippets of the uh, conversation they had. I mean, that is so much added value. It doesn't even matter if the portrait looks like the person anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Let's let's talk a bit about this, what you just mentioned. How do you see the difference in the invasion of privacy that somebody might uh, contemplate around a photo of themselves versus a drawing? How, how does this balance? How does it work? It depends a little bit. I mean, if you tell, if you, you know, agree with them, like I'm going to portray you, they will sit for you, uh, whether it's for, a, a, you know, a photo or, um, or drawing. Um, but I think a while ago I sat at uh, the dinner table with some friends and I was drawing just what was on the table and then I also drew someone who was sitting at the table, a friend of mine, and I saw that she was getting really nervous because she was so aware that she was my model, so to say, <laughs> <laughs> that I just stopped drawing her because I was like, no, I just want to enjoy her to enjoy this evening and I don't want her to feel like she's my model or she has to sit straight or anything. Um, but I think it really depends from person to person. Um, my husband is so used to me staring at him and making ugly <laughs> pictures of him, uh, ugly drawings of him. He's like, yeah, it's fine. Sometimes he's like, he's like, can I move? <laughs> I'm like, of course you can move. You don't have to sit still when I'm drawing you when you're on the couch. I mean, right. but then he's like, yeah, I wasn't sure. Or sometimes he'll say, can I pick this from the table or are you drawing it? So he's very, very, you know, used to <laughs> me just drawing everything around me. But um, yeah, that discomfort, I think people also feel um, a certain discomfort when you would take a picture of them without asking them before, beforehand. And that also happens if you draw them. So that's, I think, also why you would also always sit a little bit like on a distance when you draw your people because they won't notice. Otherwise, they would be like, what are you staring at, man? What are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. So that's kind of why I'm also uh, sneaky yeah, because exactly. I don't want to give them that discomfort. I don't want to uh, draw somebody so much in front of them that they cannot, even if they're doing something that they would notice that, oh, this person is looking at me. So I do primarily draw people who are busy in some kind of activity which makes them less aware of somebody 15, 20, 30 feet away drawing them. But uh, nonetheless, if I was right in front of them, they would sort of notice. But I'm also thinking about uh, not during the process of this being done, but even afterwards, how somebody would regard a drawing of themselves. Oh, yeah. And the spirit with which they would take a drawing of themselves that say, for example, if they didn't know it was happening, versus a photograph that they would know somebody took of them without them knowing that it was happening. And there's a sense of how we perceive these two things, not not the process of them happening, but the product that they become. What is a drawing about of me and what is a photo of me? Yeah. And the sense of wh what is our issue about of privacy and invasion of privacy with regard to these two products? Yes, that's interesting because... Um... 
when I draw on location and I draw people, I do sometimes draw people that are sitting quite close by. And then I think I'm doing it very sneakily. But then <laughs> it often happens that they come up to me and they say, I saw you drawing. Did you draw me? Can I see it? And then I'm like very much ashamed. Like, yeah, I did draw you because your hair or because you're, you know, whatever. But it doesn't look like you. You know, I'm very apologetic. And then they are like, no, I really love it. Oh, thank you so much. I feel so honored that I'm in your drawing and I can really see my features, even if it's just like the color of their sweater that resembles them i mean usually it doesn't really resemble that much because i I mostly i do it quickly and just sort of yeah um uh make quick uh, uh lines but people are always so um interested and they think um it's interesting that someone is drawing you know Somewhere in the wild, somewhere is someone is drawing them and the surroundings. Um, it feels quite differently than when they would see the digital picture on the screen that I would have taken from them. Um, I, I don't have that exact comparison, but I do see in uh, the reaction, reactions of people when they see that I have drawn them. Every single time, they are like, Wow, that's amazing. I mean, you're drawing. Right. So there's a it's it's perceived completely differently. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so true. Like there is a a sense of appreciation around the act of being drawn, but there is a sense of offense about the act of being photographed. Yeah, it's a privacy invasion, but when you draw, yeah. it's not there. It's like an artist at work. Right. So uh, I was saying that this also reminds me of something that George said. He said, uh, we, were t- we were sort of on this subject and he said that an illustration is always biased towards the subject. Mm. Even if you paint something that is quote unquote ugly, so he's painting war zones and conflict areas. So things are not pretty, situations are not beautiful, uh, uh, th- bombed out buildings and tanks and things like that. But nonetheless, the illustration is biased towards the subject and there is a need to find something of beauty or something that is interesting in the and the act of bringing it out on paper uh, forces the artist to find these things and to to focus on these things so this this contrast is also interesting to me again with respect to information that a photograph captures everything equally there's there's a neutral capture of everything in the scene so everything is equally important in a sense. You do have a focus and composition, but everything is rendered with the same amount of detail otherwise. But as an artist, you are very consciously focusing on certain things. Like if you're drawing somebody quickly, you might not have focused on their facial features, but you focused on their coat or their shoes or exactly. something like that yeah. or what they're doing. And just that changes the idea of what that is supposed to be versus if you were taking a picture of them. It's more of a story that you're telling, I think. And it's your story, the story of the artist. While, especially in, I think, a situation of war, war photography, um, it's really trying to represent what is going on. You know, it's just a picture of the gruesome stuff that's going on. And if you draw it, 
a whole different story. It's still gruesome, but a whole different story unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's let's now talk about uh, urban sketching. And you mentioned that the early things you used to draw were from imagination yeah. and these fantastical animals, for example. <laughs> um, how did how did the change to urban sketching happen for you? I think uh, it's it, it, the transition is in the travel journals uh, where I would just doodle stuff and I would also draw all kinds of imaginary things just for fun. But I would also, so at some point, I would more and more fill my pages with the things that I did that day or that I saw that day. So still it was like afterwards I would draw for my imagination. We went to the market or we went to this or... I'm seeing that. Um, and then at some point, I just started to draw the things around me at the moment itself. And it would, wouldn't be like big scenes yet, just subjects, things. Um, because I was also uh, practicing my skills, you know. I was really getting back into drawing and I was diving back into the drawing techniques that I had learned back in, uh, in the graphic design school. Um, and I was doing, you know, a drawing from the right side of the brain, from Betty Edwards, those kinds of um, uh, exercises. And then at some point, through someone's blog, because by, back then it was blogging that was the social media that we had, um someone mentioned urban sketching and i was like that's cool those that's a cool club you know <laughs> that's pretty awesome they just go out on location they dare to sketch anything and everything and then even buildings i mean how do you even do such a big thing on a small page and so uh, i remember going out with a friend who also really liked drawing liked likes to draw and I was like, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to draw a building. <laughs> <laughs> so I consider that. And it was just actually the corner of a building because we were chatting so much and having coffee and whatever. It's just a corner of a building, the rooftop uh, in Amsterdam. And I still consider that as my first urban sketch. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's years ago. But I remember the moments like, oh, actually... I can do this. It's just going out on location, making sure that you have a pen and a sketchbook and then you just do it. So, yeah. So, but I think it, uh, it's somewhere it turned around. Like um, I had these sketchbooks on vacation. I would also, you know, put in like uh, the tickets that we had for museums and stuff like that. I was like, why don't I just extend this in my you know, in Amsterdam, back in Amsterdam, there's tickets, there's stuff to draw, there's things I do, there's adventures. They might be not as exotic, but still there's there's enough going on to actually keep on going because it's a fun, a fun practice. So that's how I went from just doodling and drawing, uh, you know, on, um, uh, on vacation to yeah bringing it into a, a practice a daily practice eventually right. yeah uh, that's that's an interesting obstacle you mentioned just this idea that uh, like overcoming this idea that 
you have to represent a building on paper and how difficult that seems at the outset so i'm all uh, you we just hit upon a very nice point here we uh, you were talking about the difference between drawing when you're traveling so everything mm-hmm. is new everything is exotic and then drawing in your home city which of course amsterdam is a fantastic beautiful city with so much history but of course when it's your home it's it's the place where you've seen all your life so it's it how does this how does this contrast now irrespective of the fact that amsterdam is a gorgeous city with so much uh, art in it and so much in it that's worthy of being made into art regardless what were some of these uh, subjects that drew your eye when you're drawing your hometown when you're drawing things that you've always seen but now you're thinking of them as sketchbook worthy or things that should go down you know the things that you're suddenly giving an hour of your time to so uh, what what kind of things drew your attention what kind of things did you draw that maybe you didn't think earlier were you know things to draw you know i don't even think i thought about it that deeply because um at that time i was really getting back into polishing up my skills so i would basically draw anything i would just put something in front of me like this shape of this salt shaker might be interesting so i will draw that and then i would draw something next to it and fill up the page or just leave it like that so uh, often it would be just a thing floating onto the page Uh, or uh, it would be something that would be transparent see how i can actually capture that with pencil or maybe with a pen or how do I uh, approach this with watercolor so it was more about developing my techniques um, and then maybe I would write something next to it as well and then only later on when I started to become a little bit more uh, um, confident in my skills and about my drawings it started to become more of a daily thing or a journaling thing. And the, the subjects wouldn't just be things in front of me, but they would be small, smaller scenes. And um, yeah, at some point I would discover that going outside with your sketchbook isn't scary at all. I thought it was scary. <laughs> but it's actually really fun because there's so much to see. <laughs> And sometimes I would go out and draw and I would be intimidated by everything that I would see. And I just didn't know what to draw. And then I would just draw my feet. It's a pretty good location drawing, right? But still, (laughs) it's all practice. And because I went through that, I could relate to the people that later on I taught in my courses. They had the same... Um, problems and the same fears and anxieties around but what what if people see me drawing if I'm outside that's so scary what if they come up to me and they say something about my art which sucks (laughs) all these things I know so well I can still feel it although when I now go outside and draw I'm really happy when people come by and talk to me and there's always a story they have and I feel completely fine and confident doing it, you know. But if you would now ask me to, well, maybe you take your easel outside and go make your abstract art there in front of the marketplace, 
no, sir, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I, because I, I have no idea what I'm doing and I feel it, this is my bubble, you know, I want to sit in. But you can, you can expand that comfort zone bit by bit. And yeah, so that's, that's sort of how it started, you know, just, I wanted to polish up my skills. And once I felt a little bit more confident about that, I wanted to expand it. And it's, it's what I do still, you know, I keep learning, I keep expanding, I keep looking at artists that I really, whose work I admire. I'm like, how do they do that? I wanted to try that too. And then I make a mess and then I understand Mm -hmm. a little bit more and it's how we learn, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, This early phase is uh, so exciting when you're just building uh, skills or you're just acquiring new skills, just doing things that you thought are impossible to do but now suddenly you find oh I can do this and the next day you have another little thing that you want to try to do yeah and I remember the first in fact two three years of my urban sketching were just this kind of skill building every time I went out to draw and I did it very often I would draw I would push myself to draw something that I did not previously think I could draw Mm, and so it felt uh, it felt great to just find this was my subject. This was the thing I was chasing, something that I think I cannot do. And then you reach a point where you are reasonably comfortable with your tools. You've acquired skills with your tools to some extent, with your uh, subjects to some extent, that now it's it's like a first plateau maybe. When you know that it's not just doing quote-unquote impossible things that's exciting, now I need to find a new challenge. Yeah. And then that it it there's a there's a there's a shift in the subjects there's a shift in the kind of things you try to do and the kind of kicks you want from it the the joy that it's supposed to give you did you did you have that sense uh, as an urban sketcher so i like that transition you said about drawing say just the salt shaker because you wanted to work on a certain aspect of it drawing things that are translucent or transparent because again that's a skill to be able to represent that with various tools what was that first plateau for you and how did you how did you approach it wow that's a great question um because i don't exactly know i mean i i don't know if i'm an urban sketcher per se but uh i do remember in at the beginning i would go out to um you know i would sign up or go with the group of the uh, Amsterdam urban sketchers which was a very small group so it was really uh, felt really safe or something but it always I think all those urban sketchers groups are very very welcoming anyway Um, but often we would just go somewhere and have drinks and a lot of us would just draw the table with the drinks Uh, like is that really urban sketching I don't know (laughs) but it doesn't matter because we were just having fun and by going uh, uh, in a group like that you learn so much from each other and I made some really great friends too um, just through these small events that were planned Um, Plateau, I don't know Um, I think I think at some point there was um realization that some things might seem complicated to draw, but actually they're all shapes. You know? 
And once that sort of fell, I don't know, is that a, uh, a saying? <laughs> it, um, it made me more gutsy or it made me feel more confident to just try it, you know? Okay, so maybe I should also try adding some people in here in this drawing because there are people around so I can, you know, I can draw a street scene and leave out all the people or I could just try it, perhaps. <laughs> and it really helped to um, to look at how other people do it. That That always helps to see like, oh, wait, you're using actually a, a white gel pen to just draw sort of ghosts of people in front that feels kind of okay to do i won't mess up my drawing if i do that because it's like a transparent kind of thing so you sort of grow into that i think by um mimicking others and experiencing that even if you mess up a drawing so what it's just paper you know it's you just go on to the next page and try again or try tomorrow or it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that's the biggest boon of it being a sketchbook. Mm -hmm. The idea that once you're done with a sketchbook and you look back at your drawings, I don't think it. Ma I see anymore a bad drawing and a good drawing. And, and there are no regrets left because the whole sketchbook is a product and it's a journey. So this one dip on one day, a drawing that I didn't feel was 100% as good as it could have been, becomes so irrelevant when seen in context to that journey. And that journey is an important thing to that, that the sketchbook reinforces the fact that it's a journey. And if I was, I feel like if I was doing this on individual sheets of paper, I'd have a very different idea of my trajectory and the value of each sheet of paper. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And um, in the beginning, when, you know, when I was still uh, working as a, a, a photographer, I would draw, but I would draw on sheets of paper like that. And I just threw them all out, you know. I mean, what do you do with this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> and even uh, during the pandemic, I um, I attended quite a few of those live drawing sessions and I all did them just on large pieces of paper. I'm not keeping those, you know, it's, it's, uh, first of all, it's all sort of ugly drawings of naked women <laughs> because that's what those model drawings or those model session uh, sessions are, but also Am I ever going to look at it again? No, at the moment itself, I learned a lot from it. Um, and I had like a whole stack of them. And I just, last week, I just threw them out because I was like, okay, I, I've seen this. I know what I learned. I'm done with this. It's fine. It, this can go. I don't need this to collect dust. But I would never do that with my sketchbooks because, you know, even the early ones, I'm like, cringe you know sometimes about the drawings that I made but at the same time I'm like wow look where you know where I come from and where I'm going now and uh and also every page is part of the story so yeah it's it's has so much more value when it is you know locked into a book like that I'd like to take a short break here and speak with you about the conversation so far to preview what's ahead and to thank my sponsors. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. 
Perhaps my favorite quote from Koshia, which I read on her blog post before our conversation, was that she had discovered an extended version of the artist inside herself during COVID lockdown. I found this fascinating for two reasons. Number one, the idea that we can discover new founts of creativity within ourselves even years after being in the practice. And number two, that even within enormous constraints like the COVID lockdown, there is the opportunity to pivot and gain a fresh perspective on one's work, to transform yourself into a new kind of artist. I would like you to also consider the idea of doing what is fun. Is this an idea that you have subscribed to with respect to any hobby or art? Has it paid off in any interesting ways? I'd love to hear about it. Is fun always about avoiding what's important or can it be a way to approach life's biggest hurdles? Tell me what you think about these ideas. I love to hear from listeners and uh, maybe the best way to have my attention is to support this show. So let's talk about that. This podcast being completely independent is 100% supported by the generosity and enthusiasm of individual listeners just like you. Here are two simple ways to do it. If you like this episode, follow the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. That's it. One cup of coffee is a small but warm unit of support and it helps to keep me going. It also gives you access to the exclusive Sneaky Art Discord server where we share our art and discuss learnings from the podcast. I also do a monthly live hangout at the end of every month on the Discord, so this is a great place to get directly in touch with me. If you want to talk about this episode, if you want to share what you thought, or you want to ask me some questions. If you have heard more than one episode, and if you like this show that I put together all by myself, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Monthly supporters, or sneaky art insiders as I call them, receive many exclusive benefits. For starters, there's a weekly email from me sharing the best ideas from the podcast. You also have the chance to recommend guests, to pose questions for upcoming guests, and to enter raffles to win prints and books of my art. Of course, you also get first dibs on all the exclusive bonus content. Becoming a sneaky art insider is perhaps the best way to show me your support and it costs only about one coffee per episode. Speaking of bonus content, as I just mentioned to Kosha, I recently made a bonus commentary for episode 15 with George Butler to share what I learned about war illustrations and the history of reportage from the battlefield. It was the support of insiders that gave me the mandate to dig deeper into these tangents that catch my interest and I'm glad to be able to share what I learn with them. I'm offering a free sneak peek of this insider post for all listeners, so if you're curious about this kind of work that I do, find the link in the show notes. Finally, this episode also comes with a bonus postscript conversation. I've found that I often end up speaking further with my guests after we finish the recording. That segment, which is really just a long goodbye, sometimes becomes a second conversation in itself. It's a postscript conversation in the sense that it's without any agenda, we're just sitting back and thinking aloud about all the different things that we've processed in our main conversation. Kosha and I spoke about her ideas for publishing her book, and I asked her some things about her Patreon channel. This segment will be shared next week with all the insiders. Now, let's get to the second half of this episode. 
Having taken the long way around, we arrive finally at the subject of sketchbook school, how it started, and how Kosha also started her YouTube channel. I'm also very curious to learn about her intriguing turn towards making abstract art. What motivates someone who draws figures, who draws and paints their world as they see it? To make abstract art without shapes, without forms, without recognizable objects. Let's get into it. Uh, so that that should I think that's a great time to come to sketchbook school, uh, which is a fantastic name. Also, uh, t- tell me about how it how it began. How did this idea come to you? What was this conversation around making it like, and how how did things go? Tell me about the start of sketchbook school. Yeah, well, um, so that was back in twenty thirteen, I think fourteen. I don't. I- I can't, I I don't even remember exactly, but um, it's in the books. We can look it up. Anyway, I was already teaching online classes because as I, you know, I mentioned that before, as I was learning and developing my uh, drawing skills, I was like, hey, you know what? I can share my learnings. And I tried to find some uh, good courses online and I tried to find some books and or was YouTube, but everything was very much step one, step two, step three, how to, and um, uh, I just, I just didn't love it the way it was taught. So at some point, I was like, I did another one of those courses. I don't even remember what it was, but I was like, I can do this so much better. It was like very cocky, but I was like, well. Maybe that's a challenge for me then, you know, maybe I should try that. So um, I started to, um, to, to film my process, to film drawings that I did and then do a voiceover of how I went from A to B and about the process. It was a little bit of a how-to thing still, but it was different, I thought. And, um, and it was just really helping me to learn as well because... I think, was it Liz Steele who said that? Like, if you teach, that's how you learn best. And I think that's so true. Um, So I was just um, sharing as I was learning. And I did that through my uh, online courses. So there was this, my very first online course was um, launched in, I think, 2011 or 2012. It was called Just Draw It. And um, it was really the basics of drawing. And I would really use all those uh, drawing skills that I learned and had polished up again. And um, I had a few, you know, I I had a few rounds of it. And then I added another course and another workshop and something about character development. So that was very much about imagination, using our imagination. It was really fun because I would create this content that would teach so many others to you know go on in their um uh, development and then at some point um someone or actually a few of the participants in uh one of those courses sent me an email and they said danny gregory is coming to amsterdam you need to you need to meet him i was like danny gregory who is he again um <laughs> while he was like, the guru you know right and um he had put on his blog um, 
I'm going to Amsterdam. And if you are an Amsterdam sketcher or drawer, I would love to meet you because I want to meet people who draw. Uh, so I sent him an email. I said, well, do you want to meet? Let's go. So uh, we met for a cup of coffee in uh, Amsterdam. We did not know each other at all. I had emailed him once because on my blog, I had this Friday post that was the inspiration station. And then I would just feature artists that I thought were interesting or made interesting art. Um, so I had emailed him, like, can I pull some some drawings of you and post them on my no, whatever. So we didn't know each other at all. We had coffee and we talked about drawing, about how we use our sketchbooks, about um, uh, our audiences as well, which had a lot of overlap. And we also agreed very much upon uh, about um, how art is taught, uh, taught and that it's uh, it's a lot of how-to and it's kind of n not as joyful as art should be. And there was this thing that bothered me um, that I was teaching my courses, but it was always just one perspective. It was what I could teach, what I knew. That was what I could give people. But also by then I had, you know, made some online friends who are super, you know, great illustrators, super interesting. And I wanted to know how they do it. So I had this idea like, okay, I like doing these online courses, but I feel so limited. And I told Danny, I was like, maybe, you know, I want to bring people together, like grab all these interesting illustrators who are not teachers, but um, uh, if, if, if I can somehow bring them together so uh, people can learn from all of us, that would be so awesome. I was like, I don't know if it can be a book or an ebook or maybe an online course. I just don't know what to do with this idea. And he was like, that's such a great idea. Let's talk. Let's do this, you know. And, um, and through that, you know, building on our basic needs for ourselves, you know, how to learn. And on that idea, which was also a little bit based on his books because he has these illustrated journey and the illustrated something else, two books where he compiled all sorts of sketchbooks and yeah. uh, drawings of different people. Yeah. So it was sort of based on that. And we're like, well, let's do a course. Let's just create a course, a six week course. Both of us can teach one week in it. And then we ask four friends to teach the other weeks. And everyone just films their own material. And um, let's see how that works out. It'll be fun. It's a fun, creative project. So we started doing that. And um, while we were working on it, we created an email list. Like, uh, we can keep you posted on this really interesting project. And there were loads of people on that list. Everybody was like, what's going on? Something really cool is going to happen here. <laughs> And once we launched that first six-week course, um, it was sold out in, I think, a day or maybe two days. And it was crazy. And we were like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> because after two weeks, people were already asking, when's the next course? Well, Denny and I were like, 
this was a fun creative project that we would do together and we didn't know where it would go maybe our ways would part again after that but we're like we're on to something so suddenly we were signing contracts and we had a business and we were business partners he live he was living in LA then and I was living in Amsterdam so that was a big way away from each other but um yeah, we just did everything through video calls and uh, yeah, messaging and and all that. And then it yeah, it just grew. And in seven years' time, I can't even count how many courses we launched and workshops. And uh, Danny is now uh, has has launched a membership, which is called Spark, which uh, we worked on for years. But um, yeah, I, I stepped away and uh, he was like, I'm going to pursue this thing. I have to do this. And I'm glad. I'm really glad that he, he's, he's still going strong with it because that community of Sketchbook School is seriously amazing. Right. Um, now, I'm thinking of uh, the idea of bringing people together who can teach different things. Of course, it's not a new idea. This is also art school. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean that the name of your enterprise was Sketchbook School? How did that? How does that differentiate or stand out in comparison to art school or just learning from different artists? Well, I, I'm not going to take credit for the title because that was Danny's idea, but um, it is based on the idea that a sketchbook can be a work of art in itself, because a lot of times people look at a sketchbook as it being something that you sketch in so that you can work out ideas or that you, you know, do something that becomes uh, uh, a painting or a work of art or something like that. But we so agreed on how important sketchbook keeping and illustrated journaling actually uh, can be for your own development and for well as I said for healing for you know just um, uh, making you a better person basically I mean it makes me happy you know um, so yeah sketchbook is just I think it's a uh, I don't like the word sketch um, I always use the word drawing instead of sketching and in Dutch there is actually a you know, if in English uh, you are a sketcher, you can't be a drawer. But in Dutch, there is actually a word that is that means drawer, and I like that so much better. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's uh, that's non-existent. Uh, otherwise, maybe it would have been called drawbook school. <laughs> <laughs> no, but sketchbook no, school—it sounds good, and it, it does. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that's how it, it and and the word sketchbook is really important in it because um, it it is all happening inside of the sketchbook. Yeah, yeah, and and I agree with you. This the word sketch also irritates me a little bit because it implies that it's not the finished product. Yeah, exactly. It suggests that this is on the way to becoming art, exactly. but uh, the idea and. So there's there's a, a negative. This is the negative side of it, but I also see a positive side. So the negative side being this that it's not really it's not really art, quote unquote yeah. art. True. And you need to do more work in order to make art. So this is just a draft or it's just quick impressions. 
But the positive side is that if you think that you're not making art, you're just making sketches, mm-hmm. maybe it's easier for a newbie to dip into it without feeling that, oh, I I'm, I can't be an artist, but maybe I can make sketches. That's so achievable. Maybe yeah. that it's an attitude difference that helps them to to practice this or to allow, like, again, permit themselves to do this, yeah. give themselves the right to to actually make art, but think of it as just a sketch. It's just a sketch. It's just a page and I can turn it over. It's true. It's true. It has, it has both sides. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of my subscribers asked me this, uh, posed this question for me to ask you, which you've already answered in lots of different ways, but I want to ask you formally on behalf of Kate. And uh, she asked about how you made this decision to move on from sketchbook school. So maybe we can think of another variation of this answer and uh, think about uh, what uh, what it what you wanted to do and how like uh, in context of this seven year ten year age that we were talking about about how these things that were exciting you mm-hmm. uh, grew old is maybe uncharitable but mm. grew a little less exciting mm-hmm. or maybe other ideas excited you more so could you tell me about this the the time and the circumstances in which you made this decision. Yes. Um, thank you, Kate, for that question and putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there there have been some personal things may, uh, that partly made me decide this. Um, in t- December 2019, I was feeling so tired and I wasn't feeling great. And um, I went to... Uh, Actually, my therapist told me, well, you are totally overloaded and you are this close to a burnout. And I was shocked because I was like, what? Wait, what? And I think that's part of maybe people who are close to a burnout that they don't see it. Um, So that made me really think about, okay, so what what am I doing? that is not good for me and how can I change that? So I had to really search deep inside of myself. I did a lot of soul searching and um, whatever uh, scenario I came up with, sketchbook school did not fit into it. And it wasn't because it didn't bring me joy anymore. It wasn't really that. It wasn't like I lost my mojo. It was just that I I think my life had sort of developed in a way that it just didn't fit. And part of it was also because of, you know, I mentioned it before, Danny was in the US, I was in the Netherlands, and there was this big time difference. Or a big time difference. He was in uh, in New York most of the time, so it's six time six hour time difference. But if you deal with that every day, it can give a lot of stress. And um, actually, I felt at some point that I wasn't even in sync with the rest of my life. You know, I was living in a different time zone while I was actually physically living in the Dutch time zone, and I was missing out on things. I was not seeing my friends and family as often as I wanted because I was pursuing a dream, you know. I was really working hard and with joy and with passion at this thing we were building. Um, So that's why it was such a hard decision. I was like, 
but how, you know, I don't want to just move away from this thing, but also if I want to live my life in a healthy way, it's the only thing I can do. Sort of. This is like a very short <laughs> description right. yeah. of of one of the personal things that happened. So, um, but it it was a a, a big part of it. Um, just really uh, realizing how short life is as well. We we lost someone close to the family as well, which made me think really really hard. And um, yeah, that that really made me decide. Okay, I need to. I didn't even have a new thing that I wanted to uh, go towards. I just felt like things need to be different. And I also need a different and new adventure to start. So there were there were two tracks. There's the negative part that I just sort of emphasized on, but it wasn't just that. I, I really do want to emphasize that Sketchbook School has given me so much joy, and it still does, even though I'm not involved anymore. Um, but, uh, well, maybe it's also, you know, age. I don't know. I was, I'm 46 now and I start thinking about, you know, how, how do I, what do I do in my life? And um, uh, how do I uh, divide my energy? And, um, and that's why now I suddenly have the headspace and the time and the space to make abstract art. And it might be something that I do for a year or for two years and then I'm done with it. Or it could develop in something completely new. But um, I think, um, yeah, I just really needed to move on in some way or another. And um, the conclusion, this very sad conclusion was that um, sketchbook school did not fit in that idea and in, right. in, in what I need. So, yeah. And it was really, really hard because if there's two, you know, co-founders, if there's two um, business partners and one of them doesn't want to go on, then they take, you know, a decision for the other person. So that was, ugh, I hated doing that. But I'm so glad that we just, you know, we could talk about it and we came up with all kinds of scenarios how we could do this thing. And, uh, well, um, yeah. here we are. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that uh, you left it at a time, like right before, like you thought about leaving it already just before the pandemic yeah. because the pandemic also has uh, sparked and catalyzed so much interest in online education. I know. So, uh, if you had stuck around, perhaps the workload would have become five times as much or something like that. And uh, I, I find it really interesting that you were doing... So this is another thing that Liz Steele did so early back in 2013 or 14. And it was very interesting to me that people start, who started teaching online... Mm -hmm so much before it became the wave or so much before it became technologically so much easier, like over the last year and a half, all these programs and apps and softwares and hardware tools have come in. These The mic that I bought, for example, <laughs> and the fact that we're talking uh, remotely right now, all of these things have developed in response and grown in response to these strange times. And people have been doing it from before and you wouldn't, you wouldn't have... Like 
almost need a special mention that it 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 took it it was harder to do it before right yeah i mean if i think about it i was pretty thrifty about it i think if that's the right word um i would just i had this um what was it called again um one of those early blog posts i think it was from google doesn't matter so i had like a a blog and i found out through youtube or through another blog how to put like um uh, a password on it on the blog so people who paid for i don't even know how they paid i can't remember maybe there was a plugin for that uh people who paid for for the course they would get the um uh, the password and there would be all the material and it would release weekly there would be a new lesson so that was all really great it was it was just basically scheduled blog posts pretty smart and then it would be linked to facebook so people could post their work there and i could you know uh, give them feedback on it it was all sort of bootstrapped together but it worked and because the back then Usually when you would take uh, an online course, it would be an e-course. That's how they called it. And then you would get emails and then maybe a link to a video. So, so it was super like... Yeah, and there, <laughs> there wasn't a platform around it already. <laughs> exactly. And also the way that Danny and I managed to manage a company, you know, a grow, fast-growing company remotely... I mean, everybody is on Zoom right now and on Teams and whatever, what have you. But that wasn't very usual when we started, you know. It would be Skype. And then at some point, we moved on from emailing back and forth, crazy, to Slack, which also is a horrible tool, actually, because there's too many notifications. But it was it was better for the uh you know for the uh, work uh, workflow but yeah so also sketchbook school in the beginning was also kind of bootstrapped right there weren't yeah. like there was one, there were one or two platforms that would actually you know um yeah because when i started my online courses there weren't any platforms that you could could plug in so i did that blog thing and then Things like Ruzuku came in and then Teachable and more and more came. Uh, so by the time we started Sketchbook School, we actually used, I think, Ruzuku and uh, plugged everything in there. But it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's, I think there's still, still some systems in place that, you know, are, have their roots at the very beginning and aren't that logical anymore. But otherwise, everything will fall, you know. <laughs> so yeah but it's it's true um back then it wasn't so common and now it's like you can't even choose so many um things are often offered online yeah 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 and around the same time that uh, you started with sketchbook school you also started a youtube channel yeah a little bit earlier actually yeah a little bit earlier interesting so tell me a little bit about uh how you how you decided that this was something you wanted to do how did you decide what kind of content you wanted to offer on it yeah so that also had to do with my online courses um because yeah the videos that i would make for the online courses i would do on youtube and if i look at 
those it's like such bad video material but hey you learn right i mean it's not just in the in the art of drawing that i've been developing <laughs> i've become a producer now too but <laughs> sort of but um yeah so uh, i would use youtube for um my videos for the courses but also at some point um i i followed someone who was into marketing who was a marketing coach or a marketing uh, guru and um uh from her i got the idea of doing something a weekly thing or something and and then at that same time i also had a have a friend uh, in new, new jersey who is all into branding he's a branding specialist and i think at the same time he suggested something similar like why don't you do like a free a free video series that you put out on youtube and that will drive traffic to your website so you can get you know more customers for your courses I was like, that's a good idea. I'm making these videos anyway. I can do one extra. Um, so that's really how Draw Tip Tuesday started. Like, I'll be doing these weekly tips as I am learning. I, I'll just, you know, try uh, try a technique and film it, and then sort of make sense of it in the in the voiceover, and maybe it will drive some traffic. And it was successful. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. I did take a break um, during my sabbatical, but I sort of missed it. I really like doing these <laughs> videos, so I'm I'm back at it now. So yeah. Yeah, and uh, the 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 weekly tips is such an interesting thing to me because my first thought is how do you not run out of tips? Uh, to give? You never do. <laughs> the the second thought that comes <laughs> to me in exactly what you said is that sometimes just the act of being in this cycle having the momentum of articulating your ideas as tips mm -hmm. helps you to have more ideas yeah. as tips mm -hmm. it's totally true and because it's based on well you guys what i am learning is just what i'm putting out here and i'm just trying to give some words to it with my crooked english and um and you know maybe you get something out of it so um that also makes it less um, uh, tense for me or less of, um, how do you say that? Um, it makes it easy for me to do it. Like, well, it's for free, you know? If I, if I don't do it, there's no video at all. It's the same approach that I have to doing a drawing. Well, if it's, if it's an ugly drawing, it's still, you know better than no drawing <laughs> so that's sort of how i, I approach uh draw tip tuesdays like well I'll, I'll just put this out here and maybe people can get something out of it and now i do feel like well it has to look a bit nice and there has to be some kind of structure to it but i can do it because i have more experience making these videos right. too so. right right yeah similarly i've been running a an, an email newsletter for just a year now it's just now a one year and two weeks oh no it's one year and one month today almost and i initially thought how am i going to write every week but the more you do it the more you get into the groove yeah. of expressing yourself and the easier it gets every week to have something worth saying so uh having a schedule is very interesting to me and what it 
even before you have all the answers around it, like sort of again about the, what we were saying about the trajectory thing, that not having everything mapped out, knowing what you're going to do in week 10, week 12, week 20, 27, but just having this nice process that you're running every week uh, leads to leads to interesting results. And sometimes unpredictable results are better than things that we would plan and coordinate from before. Like there's this uh, idea about writing, uh, which applies sort of to... So I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy novels. And there's this idea that there are two types of writers in this genre. So if you would compare two really famous... Uh, franchises say lord of the rings versus uh, game of thrones mm-hmm. so the writer of lord of the rings grr tolkien was uh, an architect this is one idea that he's not actually an architect but the way he writes is the approach of architecture in that you have a design you have all the scaffolding in place you know exactly how everything is going to look mm-hmm. and then you start making it mm-hmm. and not before that and the other, Game of Thrones, written by George R.R. R. Martin, he has the approach of what is called a gardener in the sense that he knows what he wants to start and he knows the things he needs to do, but he does not dictate the exact final form that it's going to take. And he has no expectation that he can coordinate everything to look exactly a certain way. His job is just to plant the seeds and give it water and then to help it to grow yeah. rather than to dictate the exact architectural form that his work will take. Mm-hmm. And so running a YouTube channel the way you do, and then I'm also thinking of the daily ritual that you have, all near daily ritual with Instagram, it feels similar to me. So can you tell me a little bit about how having a schedule, having a commitment of this kind, daily on one side, weekly on another, how 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 important is it for you and how does it help you? Yeah. So I think that's really interesting, um, those two comparisons. Um, And I think I'm definitely a gardener, but (laughs) even though I used to be a plant killer, but that's uh, all that aside. Um, Yeah, so the weekly thing, um, I just keep like a list of ideas every time because ideas come to me like whenever, when I'm in the shower, when I'm walking around or when I'm cooking, I'm like, that's a great idea for Draw Tip Tuesday. And I'll just type it into my Evernote uh, note, which gets longer and longer and longer. And then I always, if I don't have an idea, I always have something to pick from. I also get requests through YouTube, you know, I will also put them on the list and I will just pick the ones that really stand out to me or that I feel like doing. So there's a lot of ideas in there that keep on just going down and down that list. Like, no, not today. No, not this week. Maybe I'll never do them. Um, But that gives me something to hold on to. Like, okay, there's always an idea and often the list is untouched because I have a new idea, you know, for the next video already because I just get ideas from the stuff that I am doing uh, in the moment. And I think the two are totally, uh, they relate to each other because often when I am drawing in my daily journal, I'm doing something or I finish a drawing or I'm using a certain tool. I'm like, this is totally good for Draw Tip Tuesday. This is great. So it's just really small things that uh, can actually spark an idea 
for the weekly videos. And, and um, I also have sort of a structure to the videos. I don't want them to be much longer than five minutes, seven minutes. Uh, sometimes I do a sketchbook tour, then they are a little bit longer because I want to talk through the art. Um, but usually I want them to be short so people watch them and they can draw and do it themselves. You know, they have more time for drawing than for just sitting and watching videos because that's what we tend to do. Just scrolling through Instagram, watching videos, looking at how other people do it. And the more you look at that, the more you think I can never do that. I won't even start. So that's the idea behind Draw Tip Tuesday, like here's a short, you know, push. Now you go do it. Um, so doing that on a weekly basis keeps you in a certain flow. And sometimes I, uh, I will just, you know, record a few in a row if I have like a video day and then I'll edit the days after. So I just have a bunch um, to, to post later because I don't always have that much time. There's other projects to work on, but it does definitely give, give me a lot of uh, structure. And I, I mentioned it before, I love having some kind of structure to hold on to. So I have rituals, you know, like I like my coffee in the morning and just sitting down and just taking a moment for that. And maybe I'll take my sketchbook with that. So I have a whole, you know, caffeinated meditation, art meditation. Um, yeah, so they feed each other. Definitely. And the daily practice feeds the creativity through, through my days, actually, too. Um, because uh, if I haven't drawn in the morning, there will be moments in my day that I think, oh, this, I could draw this. This could be interesting. Or hmm, maybe I can take a, take a break later on and then go someplace and, and draw for an hour. So it's always there. It's part of my day and that's also what I'm trying to teach people like if you want to get better at drawing you have to put the work in it and to put the work in it it's important to make time for it in your day so you need to make it a priority uh, just as well as doing your grocery shoppings or cooking a meal or whatever is important to you you know on a daily basis um, yeah, so that structure really helps me to to keep on going. And then it sort of goes by, its, it runs itself. Because I miss it if I don't draw, you know. I'm like, oh, I didn't draw today. Hmm, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking, uh, like, if you had not started a YouTube channel and somebody said, you need to write 100 drawing tips for a book. <laughs> It would be so much harder than having put the 100 weeks or less, in fact, if you have multiple ideas once you're in the flow, of doing it one one by one by one as they come and getting into what I described, just getting into the business of doing things rather than making a full plan and then executing that plan. Right. Uh, let's let's talk about, uh, I, I want to talk about this, uh, the journey to abstract art and how that came in for you and uh, so a couple of questions about it firstly how did you feel the need to do this was it catalyzed by something specific and secondly uh, I want to talk about the studio space that you built in order to do it and again 
how did you feel the need to have that yeah. space so yeah. both of these things like how were doing it and then this way of doing yeah. it yeah okay um so i think there's a few things that catalyzed it um first of all i had a lot of time on my hands because i had a sabbatical <laughs> <laughs> and there was no traveling <laughs> So I was like, well, this is a great time to do these things that I um, uh, always thought like, hmm, I'm curious about it, but I don't have time for it. And one of those things was, um, it, it could as well have been ceramics or something like that, but um, it was painting. I was like, I want to know a little bit more about mixing paint and using texture and um doing something that isn't based on working with line so i really wanted to um ex i think expand my uh my skills outside of the sketchbook uh and maybe that was also because i was like okay so i i'm now moved away from sketchbook school so I was still sketchbooking, but maybe I was also still associating it a little bit with work. I'm not sure. This is just my brain thinking about it afterwards, you know, but it might, might have been sort of the push towards doing painting. So um, I was like, well, I have time for this. I have some gouache here. So let's just get that out and see what I can do with it. Um I took a few classes on drawing figuratively, so drawing from observation. I did a portrait class, um, something about portraits, but not like super, um, they were called expressive portraits, I think was the class called. It was very interesting. And, um, and I also took a few other classes. I, I can't really remember who, who, who taught them and where I got them, but sorry, <laughs> made a big impression. But no, I did learn a lot. And I also uh, learned a, uh, a whole lot of things from YouTube. I followed a few people on YouTube and I just started to do some still life kind of things. Just again, stuff on the table, you know? Okay, there's a piece of, let's, let's draw a piece of fruit. Let's um, really understand how I can, paint this piece of fruit using my colors and mixing my colors and should it be the same colors that I see or can I do something completely different all these kinds of experiments that a beginner does you know maybe I should just do it in grayscale how what do I learn from that so all these kinds of exercises that are I think pretty basic um, and then with the uh, with the portraits I was interested to work a little bit uh, larger because it was expressive portraits and the lady who taught it would also just, you know, she would make a beautiful portrait and then she would wipe through it. So it was like a blurred portrait and then she would go over it again. I was like, what is going on? I'd never seen a process like that, you know? Um, and that initiated to work a little bit bigger. I wanted to work bigger. So I bought an easel and I was standing there in a living room and stuff was on the dining table and I actually really wanted to splash paint around, but I was afraid that it would get on the walls. <laughs> so things really, you know, accumulated. And I was like, I, this, is, this isn't really working. Um, and then I happened to run into a neighbor 
who uh, is an artist. She's 80 years old. She is a fantastic lady and um, uh, very uh, inspiring and um, very vivid too. And she said, well, you are an artist, right? And uh, do you need a space? I was like, well, actually, I don't know if I need a space, but I am now really, you know, uh, very much uh, uh, experimenting on canvases and I have no idea what I'm doing. But uh, yes, I would be interested actually to do that somewhere else outside of the uh, apartment. She said, well, uh, the space where I rent, um, there's a new space, there's a space that someone is, is leaving. So I'll put you on the list. And I was put on a list without really, I didn't even say yes, I think. <laughs> but she was like, I'm putting you on the list. I want you in there. <laughs> so there were a p- few people on that list, but I was selected. I think it had something to do with her. She was like, I want that. I want that lady. I want my neighbor there. So, um, yeah, so so it's in a, an old school building not far from uh, our apartment. And I uh, I rent a space that uh, or half of like um, a, a room in the school, and I have so much space it's crazy. At first I did not know what to do. I had one easel in a big space. <laughs> like this is too big for me. I'm not an artist. I don't know. But soon enough uh, I I really grew into it, and um, I can now work on four canvases at the same time, which I love because I don't like to wait for paint to dry. So I can just work on one. And then while that is drying, I can do the other one. And I have to say for art like that, space is everything because you want to be able to step away. You want to be able to work uh, on different surfaces at the same time. Um, you really need that space also for all your stuff because you just have lots of you know paint and brushes and all that. Um, but that made me really free and just daring to go wherever. And uh, I signed up for a membership um, at uh, Adele Sieperstein. She's an amazing abstract artist. I really love her work. I'm like, okay, I'm going there. <laughs> You know, that's that's the, the path I'm taking somewhere towards that. <laughs> and I'm just really, really at A. She is at Z and I'll, you know, make my way to B, C, D and I'll see wherever I get. Um, so that's that's how that came about. So I needed. I, yeah. One thing I, I, I skipped over. Not just the space, because you asked two things. Also, the need to um, do the painting, you know, partly because I wanted to do something different than drawing. But I think something happened there in the pandemic, too. And I actually talked about it with um, um, with Suhita a while ago. Um, and she mentioned, like, there is something about the tactile experience um, because... We both noticed that a lot of our friends, uh, sketchbook artists, urban sketchers, were starting to pick up paint or were doing collage or doing really different things or uh, a lot of mixed media because, well, you're inside so you can use all your media instead of just a few tools in a pencil case that you can carry around when you're outside. So there was this whole development too of 
and we couldn't, you know, even give each other a hand or hug each other. So she said, maybe there's a certain thing about the tactile experience that, um, that is fed by uh, what we miss during this pandemic. I thought that was so interesting. And I think it's true. So all these things combined together, yeah, worked me into an art space, <laughs> studio yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Um, I'm also thinking about uh, just generally what motivates abstraction, like uh, the kind of art you've uh, pursued before, even in photography, mm-hmm. even in drawing, it either comes from representing what you see or it comes from a source of imagination inside you of, again, objects, like things as perhaps they don't exist in nature, like some of uh, fantastical animals, but things that are distinct objects. But abstract art is not precisely that. So there's this space that it occupies, which is not related to reality or imagination, but you are accessing something very deep within yourself. So can can you tell me a little bit about that? Like as an artist who's pursued other styles of art for so long, what did you, did you have to reach inside somewhere to find like to, you know, to standing in front of a canvas and you're not going to paint forms of things, so to say, what kind of challenge is that? How did you meet it? I think it was, I met it somewhere in that, uh, or maybe beyond that expressive portraits um, experience where I saw the teacher just really um, not holding on to what she already made and just smearing it and then layering over it and then making something even more awesome. So it was really about learning to let go of what you you know what you have made and what looks pretty okay and then just challenging yourself by throwing something completely around like oh okay this is a whole new different canvas now i need to work on this again and um so that is part of that you can't really do that when you draw on a piece of paper you know you can of course you can do a wash over it or do gouache or something but it's it's not the same um effect of layering or of changing the whole uh, basic of of what you are working with so that was something that was really interesting to me i hope i explained it well um and then i was doing these portraits and i was doing self portraits because it was like yeah otherwise i'm you know painting from photos, people that I don't really know, what does it even mean? And after doing a, quite a few of those, I was like, yeah, okay, I've seen that face. <laughs> and I was like, is that it? You know, am I just doing figurative again? I, I If I want to do selfies, I'd actually rather do selfies in my sketchbook. So then I started to, okay, well, I do like the layering. What is what is about that layering? I need to research a little bit more about that. So I started to find uh, some more, uh, you know, mixed media artists and uh, people who use collage and people who do um, abstract art. Nicholas Wilton is also someone that I, I'm following now. And I mean, he's amazing too. And I think... Both him and uh, Adele Siebstein, who I'm following, 
they have the same intuitive kind of approach that I that really appeals to me. Like putting something on that canvas, layering something else on top, scratching inside of it so you see the other layer, um, just gluing something on it, looking at it, thinking, oh, I don't like that color. Okay, I'll just layer over that. It's, um, you can actually... I mean, people can't see this, but you can actually see me on the screen making big gestures. Those things, that is so different. Even if you work on a big sketchbook, you can't do these big gestures. And it's um, what I feel about this abstract art is that it's so free because it it doesn't have to represent anything. It could represent something, you know, you could see something in it or it can be inspired by something that you saw. Um, But I think what appeals to me so much is that it is so much the complete other side of the spectrum from drawing. It's, it's, It's a different world. I feel like if I'm in that art space, I feel like I am in a different world. Uh, yeah, and I, I approach it uh, completely differently. I don't use any pens. If I do some kind of line or drawing in it, in my in my paintings, I actually do it with my non-dominant hand with, with a very long brush so that I have no control. So, and I, I think it can actually eventually also um, feed my sketchbook, maybe at some point. I might just start drawing with my left hand as well as my right hand, you know, in my drawing. So it is on the other side of the spectrum, but but I think it could it could feed each other once I uh, I get to know my you know extended abstract artist <laughs> a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. So many so many points to ponder in that. Uh, I'm thinking about. Uh, what we ju- what you just said about this uh, flip between control and freedom, mm-hmm. because of course, uh, as somebody who also does a lot of line work, just like me, I'm pretty much all line work. Yeah. There is a very pre- uh, precise uh, sense of control that we have over what's going to be shown on the page. And I have this feeling when I work in the way that I do limitedly with watercolors that there is, it involves me giving up that control, allowing something to happen because of the dynamics of watercolor on paper, you can't be in precise control of the output. So you will, uh, you have to allow for a period of discovery in that the final piece takes a form that you couldn't have predicted. And even while you're working on it, you are reacting to what is happening on the page, how it is drying, how it is intermingling with other colors. And you are uh, sort of uh, a dance between 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 you and what the world has decided for your page that day, mm-hmm. and uh, so in the, I'm thinking about that with respect to the canvas, and with respect to the canvas, not only for the fact that you're working, a you're working with tools that you don't otherwise work with, b you're working in a subject that you don't otherwise work with, you're not depicting things. So you are accessing something inside you and you are going constantly with what what happened and how it looks and how it makes you feel and what you might want to do next. Maybe it's not so easy to predict 10 steps ahead. You're maybe looking only one or two steps ahead Mm -hmm. and then reacting again. Mm -hmm. 
but i'm also thinking now about the change in the size mm-hmm. and what that does like even if you have a large sketchbook you're seated yeah preferably seated comfortably and more likely than not there's a surface on which the thing the sketchbook rests and what does it mean that if you're not seated and if you're not drawing from your wrist or your elbow but with your shoulder and you're physically expressive around your work so you're walking up to it you're coming back from it How, what what does this do then to what you're doing yeah um it's true if i come home from an afternoon or a day or a morning whatever in the art studio my feet hurt and then i'm like why am i so tired it's because i never sit down it's right. just it, i just stand because i want to make these big gestures that's that's actually the reason that i wanted to go bigger because i was working on smaller pieces of paper and then at some point i had a small canvas i think i don't remember what the order exactly was but i bought that easel because i was like i want to do gestures with my arms and not just my wrists or from my elbow i just want to do big stuff and um yes it it's a that's why it's such a different world i'm so used to draw with my sketchbook on my lap basically i don't draw that often even at the table um and it's so you know um you you create a really small world a really small bubble for yourself which i love because i'm you know i will be completely absorbed in my page and with my subject and i have a few tools around me and i'm just playing and then with the um with the painting it's the same i'm just playing but i have a big playroom <laughs> <laughs> and you know i can i can literally just throw paint from you know i can just hold my hand back and then throw it as i would tr- throw a ball and i just throw it to the to the painting i can do that because it's not in the living room so that makes a playing really different my playground is just a really different playground um plus i have different tools and different uh um uh, toys <laughs> to play with but um it is both very much playing and there's in both there is the element of surprise because i don't really plan my drawings you know i often i start too high or too low on my page and i'm like oh, i did it again duh stupid but then i you know then i see that as a challenge like okay there's a creative problem to solve i'll solve it we'll see what happens and sometimes i start with you know for example a continuous line drawing and then you know i start on the left hand of the page and i knit all my way through the other side of the page and then it fills the whole page and it works and then i'm like oh i love it when a plan comes together even if it wasn't really a plan but still i feel right. really proud yeah but the that feeling of i love it when a plan comes together i don't have that when i paint because it's just slapping on layer upon layer and the biggest um lesson there is letting go because there will be some point that you're like okay i really love this piece of the painting but i have to cover it in order to t- 
take it to another level or to work on it a little bit more so I can actually, on the other side of the painting, I can bring more balance. So it is always about bringing balance, I think. And that is also what I often keep an eye on when I draw in my sketchbook. So there's a lot of parallels while there are so many big differences. But the element, the surprise element is, I think, also playing and the element of surprise and and letting go, I think, too. Just like, whatever happens, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all of these are such valuable lessons, regardless of what medium you practice your art in. Yeah. Like just if you are uh, habituated to precision it's such an important skill to be able to let go yeah um i was just thinking of something completely unrelated to art uh, i was thinking of the first time i went scuba diving and uh i loved it but it took me 20 minutes to love it because my instructor had to teach me that you will not be in full control yeah you can't Scary. you can't uh, decide exactly that you're going to look in this place or that you're going to stay at this depth you will bob up and down a little bit you will with the currents shift a little bit so on land we are very precise my arm is here my legs are here I'm facing this way my pose is this but that's not going to be true in scuba diving and the lesson here was that the more you try for it the worse you will do ah. so you have to accept by accepting that you can't be in control, yeah. you will regain some measure of control. Yeah. And that's, that's a, it's, it's a great life lesson and it plays out in art also in so many ways. So for example, if I'm drawing and my drawing feels like it's not going so well today, I have to still stick with it. And I know that I'll come up with something, even if I don't feel in control of the output right now. Yeah. If I just go through the whole thing, it will somehow come out to work. And maybe not today, maybe tomorrow it will suddenly look like, I don't know why I was even complaining. It looks perfect. Oh, yeah. So true. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The letting go is, I think, really important. Sometimes I notice that I am sitting, drawing and really doing my best to make it work. And I'm like, okay, I need to just now relax, stop, let go, maybe grab another tool because why am I even being so tense about this? It's just a drawing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I think I think that's really important that you let go of the idea that your finished drawing has to be great. Because as you say, even if you don't like it that much next day you might actually like it or the week after or you at least you learn something from it it's just a moment um yeah that you feel insecure or not so happy about probably but but then yeah if you let go and just trust i think that's it trust it will be it will be fine it will be okay and especially i mean with scuba diving, yeah, you have to trust and you have to trust your body that everything is okay. But with drawing, nothing really can go wrong, you know? Yeah, yeah, so true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk about, uh, about looking ahead now. So the kind of things that you are doing, the kind of things you have planned now with uh, 
so much or so many months of the sabbatical behind you mm-hmm. so many ideas have uh, have blossomed out of just simply having fun as we were talking about just simply doing things without an agenda so to speak um you're doing in person workshops again you have this book that you are now seeking a publisher for you started a patreon so tell me about these uh, 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 how you see the next few months and the kind of things you want to you want to be doing yeah so it's it's not like super clear to me just yet but um uh, having started those in person workshops again that first um workshop weekend that I did together with my friend uh, Sabine Wisman that felt a little bit like a starting point of new beginnings I mean that sounds really big but it did it, it did feel like okay here we go you know there's this is just the start of a lot of fun things and um, working with her is really great so we'll do more of that uh, but of course, I will keep an eye on, um, you know, work-life balance and uh, let's not start another sketchbook school <laughs> right away with a new business partner. But who knows? Who knows what gets out of our collaboration? Uh, we are both really having fun and we are deciding our workshops uh, or our collaboration really on, is it fun? Uh, what do we get out of it? You know, not like financially, but more like, is is this something that feeds us in in a in a creative way? Um, so that's really great to have a, sort of a partner there that I don't have to build everything uh, myself. But I might actually start doing uh, workshops on my own. Um, not sure yet. I just really need to feel out how I want to um, put things in my days and weeks, and I feel like time runs out faster and faster i think that's age two um so uh yeah and i will be going on that really awesome trip that has been postponed twice uh to greece where i will teach for 12 days um with the blue walk so those are all things that are like okay let's go let's go let's go um and yeah i think the in-person workshop thing is really a thing because I, you know, after teaching online for so many years, in person is just the way to do it. And if, you know, the world um, uh, doesn't, you know, uh, <laughs> we're not gliding into another pandemic, uh, maybe we can actually do this. And then, you know, I could do it anywhere and not just uh, in the Netherlands. So there's plans and ideas for that. Um, well, I hope to get my book published, and um, if I do, I'm I already have an idea for a next book, but I'm not sure if and how. But yeah, and um, and then yeah, there's Patreon. I started that not so long ago because I I talked with a few people who have a Patreon account, and I, I follow a few people. I was like, I think it's kind of interesting, but I also am kind of like leaning towards leaning against it because it's kind of a membership. So it might be a lot of work for maybe not that much income. How does it actually work? But I think, I think the crowdsourcing idea behind it, I kind of like it. And I was like, maybe I should just switch it on and try it and see 
how how I can use it once you know it's on. So I think I'm uh, I'm the gardener there doing you know planting a little plant, see how it grows. Maybe it will bloom. Maybe well, yeah. Um, so I just I have now that Patreon with one tier uh, for the Draw Tip Tuesday fans, which is really great because people are signing up for it. Like, oh, I've been following you for years. Finally, I can pay you for it. So I love that. And it's just like buying me a coffee. You know, I, I, I like, I, I love the, um, um, it's, it's a nice gesture. It's a nice idea. And it, it really helps me. And it, you know, it pushes me to do it weekly, to make these videos weekly. It really helps me. Um, but I'm really trying to figure out, do I need to add more tiers just, you know, for income, but, um, again measuring measuring things against how much work is it is it worth it what do i give people what do do they expect can i meet their expectations all that and it really needs time to figure that out and i just i'm just taking that time before i dive into something and then get overloaded again and like oh i you know because i can dive into something so enthusiastically that i kind of forget that there's all the other things going on as well that need time. So that's where I am now, actually. Yeah, it's an exciting, it's exciting times. Just, you know, trying to balance things out and finding my way again, just like I did when I, you know, moved on from photography. I know that things will turn out in, in the right way because I'll just take decisions and we'll see where I land. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's a canvas and you're doing the abstract art of your life. Yes. Layering and doing some, you know, non-dominant hand painting. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, I think, uh, Patreon and buy me a coffee, all these platforms are primarily so, uh, have been a revelation to me because I've been pleased to discover how many people just want to support you right and it's not always about so exactly. there is of course the a tier at which you want to offer something back yeah but i am amazed at the number of people who don't have specific expectations of getting more from you yeah. and slowly and actually quite rapidly so if you think about it we have entered into this this zeitgeist that we should support people and the creator economy has really made it possible to do so in so many ways yeah. and culturally people have accepted and internalized that idea that they can and they should and it is beneficial to support people who make things for yeah. us so it's it's a good time to start a patreon and it's a good time that you're on youtube already and you're doing things with it for so long it's yeah. all of it is coming up to a very new uh, entering a very new world of interacting online yes exactly yes and i i also wonder because i've been doing you know posting stuff on instagram for ages as well um and it just only made sense because it was all image based and i was like well my blog posts are basically images with a small you know description it's instagram is perfect for that but now i don't know how serious we need to take all the um, uh, all the chatter around uh, how uh, Instagram is drastically going to change and through, it's going to be only video and people are really concerned. And I'm like, 
well, it's a social media platform and we're all using it. It's a marketing tool. I mean, yeah, you don't really have control over it either. But maybe it's easy to say for me because I have been doing videos and I'm like, well, if it's only videos, oh, <laughs> you know, I'll switch over to that. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that uh, that debate is legitimate in some senses. But I, I mean, while I completely understand what you're saying, the fact that things evolve yeah. and if people are fundamentally more interested in videos, then Instagram is going to pivot towards that. Yeah. And as visual artists, maybe we also have a responsibility to address the fact that people are more interested in videos. But uh, yeah, I think I think the the pushback comes from the people who actually kind of rightfully say that they are the reason why Instagram is so big. Instagram started as a place where all the photographers went in yeah. mass mm -hmm. and made it into Instagram. Yeah. So they have kind of made it into the the billions of dollars of worth of company that can make these changes. And now they feel like they have been uh, cast aside yeah, in order I for the new totally thing. Yeah, I get that, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, is, it is uncomfortable times for people, but it is also... It is like, so <laughs> I, there's this uh, another quote that comes to mind mm -hmm. that a friend of mine shared and he's a stand-up comedian in India. So it's very apt for his line of work, but also for this. And the quote is that the the worst time to be an artist is the best time to be an artist. <laughs> and it's sort of uh, the tougher that Instagram is becoming now it is also just like this pandemic has pushed us to reconsider so many things and pushed us way out of our comfort zone in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It has also therefore created opportunities for new realities and new solutions, which didn't exist before. Zoom and online workshops in the way they are conducted being a very good example of that. Uh, but same, similarly for Instagram, if Instagram is an adversity, it today we are in a position where I think more possibilities exist instagram is not the only institution yeah. that we need and maybe it's good if we don't rely on any one single institution oh yeah i i totally agree yeah yeah so uh this has been a lovely conversation kosher thank you so much for having it with me teaching me so much and telling me all about your wonderful journey with art thank you nishant it was really great Thank you for listening. Our conversation continues postscript and I'll be sending that section out next week to Sneaky Art Insiders. I'm glad for your time and for your attention and I'll see you in the next one.